zip lock that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper. The absolute truth, yeah, no. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Another edition. What is this volume, Cody? Ooh, are we nine or ten? Volume nine or ten of the booth. We might be in double digits. The czar is here. Cody, how are we today? It's a beautiful Thursday in the Northeast. How are things down in Texas? It's a little wet, Neil. You know, we got the fall weather finally rolling in. It's no longer 100 degrees. We're comfortably in the 80s, a couple 70s days. You know, had to put sweaters, the, all the all the wives out there with jumbo scarves on, you know, little pumpkin spice latte season, but it's wet and rainy. I'm a little concerned about you guys coming down next week because I think everybody's expecting this pop, this firm Texas turf. And it might be a little saturated, but happy to be here, buddy. And we don't talk golf here on on the on the trap draw on the booth. We know that. First, thank you, Mr. Jeezy. Second, I got some some foliage popping out my window here, Ooh, Cody. Like temperatures ping ponging back. It was in the fifties yesterday. It's in the seventies today. I just I'm trying to soak in all this this autumn goodness here uh, in in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And you know what that what this weather is. I would call this weather Roback weather. Ooh, okay, this yes. episode presented by our friends at Roback. You all know Roback. These he guys understand it. quality. There's only one way to describe Roback. Best fit, best feel. Now that we're kicking off autumn, it's the perfect time to load up on the best gear that we own. Specifically, I'm wearing right now the uh, the new crew neck. They're making crew necks now. Same texture as the hoodies. But crew necks, hoodies, quarter zips, uh, they're all dialed. Also, the performance polos just hit different, whether in, in the USA theme designs or they've got some nice autumn and college football stuff, uh, you know, cooking on the uh, Roback site. With four-way stretch and moisture-wicking fabric, these polos will get you through a warm autumn day on the course. Probably going to need to layer up on top of that. Second, Roback's performance hoodies are the stretchiest, softest hoodies in golf. Here, here. If you want to be comfortable and relaxed on the course, then wear a Roback hoodie. You guys know we can't take them off. And if you start your day right, then you start it in a rowback hoodie. I also want to call out a little shout out to, to Nest. We got a little rowback discount for Nest members. They can use their code for 20% off if you're a Nest member on any purchase. But here for Trap Draw listeners, code NLU on rowback.com for a generous 20% off your first order. Not any order, Cody, your first order. That's spelled R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. That's 20% off all polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with code NLU. So get in there, layer up before this uh, hoodie weather turns into parka weather. Shout out to Roback. Love their stuff. The best fit, Phil, you name it. I'm living my lives right now every single day in a hoodie. I absolutely love these things. And I know we don't do double ads here. We're not doubling up, but that's an awesome deal for Nest members. Neil, where do people go? If they want to sign up for the nest, uh, no laying up.com forward slash join. And if you're a member and you're looking for this rowback code, go to no laying up.com forward slash profile. So shout out to rowback for adding a little nest value on top of all the other things we do with them. Love it. I I'm so happy to hear that the leaves are changing for you. And guess what? I was up in your neck of the woods last week and you were gone. 
We we literally were planes in the night. You went west coast, I went east coast. I agree, it was beautiful up there. Got to check out a uh, a couple very nice golf courses. We don't talk about golf here. I'm not going to talk about golf. I saw you wet in your beak, but I you know dabbling around in a couple grills and and checking out some uh, you know some foot logos things like that. It was absolutely beautiful though. I was I was shocked. I think it's one of those things where I told Yari when I came home like. If we were, if we could set up the perfect calendar, I think it would be a summer in either Michigan or I might even throw in Wisconsin there now. I think I would do my fall in the Northeast and then everything else be back in the great state of Texas. So you do winter and spring in Texas? Yeah. I mean, well, you want me to be a Florida man? No, if, I think, I, I do think that, uh, like not so much Southern California, but that like Monterey, even San Francisco in the winter is really nice because you still get a little, it gets chilly, but it's like, oh man. I mean, Jacksonville in the winter was awesome too. It was still yeah. kind of hoodie weather. There's a season change, but you're just not, you know, you're taking walks on the beach. You're riding your bike. It's great. You know, Neil, I don't disagree with that take. I just think that with a take like that, there's second and third order effects that come with it. Just like everything else is going on, like in the in the world right now, you can't really put a single take out there because that means that you're also saying that second and third, like you have to fall in line behind that. And moving to California, I agree it's perfect weather, but dude, daddy can't afford. I can't afford no, them taxes, man. Come on, I feel that. I saw a sign the other day. It was like gas was like nine dollars a gallon. I, I was out in, in L.A. last week, and I had to fill up the rental car before dropping it off. It was 7, I think it was like 760-something. It was crazy. And that's just I'm wild, sh- man. I'm sure you're just putting straight-up regular unleaded in there. No premium. Oh, yeah. I mean, no I was you know, in the rental car. rocking a Jeep Compass, of course. <laughs> Did you pick the Jeep Compass? You know what? I got kind of booked. I'm, I'm normally an enterprise guy. But it got booked through National, which allows me to pick any car in the aisle. Oh, and I did. I picked the Jeep. It was a white, kind of sporty Jeep Compass. I was rolling solo. I didn't need a ton of space, but it was almost overwhelming the options in the aisle. There were a lot of good options. A lot of these like mid and and small SUVs. Uh, and and I, I'd say I've been in. Uh, I've actually rented a Jeep now. Like in the last couple years, I feel like I've rented several Jeeps. It's a good car. It would you, you know? But you I do need to call Jeep? out. No, I don't think so. Um, also, I, I think my experience in a Jeep has been good, but these Derek Jeter Wagoneer commercials might be like the counterbalance to me appreciating Jeep. I mean, they are so bad. It, it's so bad, it's good. You know, when he's when all flights are grounded and and Jeter's got to get home to the to the the wife and the twins. I always think of you, Cody. He's like, oh, he's just he's got to get home to the twins. He's family he's, first, uh, he's, man. Come on. He, he gets stopped in, in the middle of nowhere by a wolf. Uh, and then all of a sudden he's on the causeway in, in, in St. Jetersburg. It's it's incredible. I mean, that commercial is incredible theater. It's it's terrible, but I'm starting to appreciate it because I see it so much. God, Emma, uh, playoff season, they've just been beating that thing up too. It's nuts how much they played. I feel like NBC also got a ton of run out of that during the Ryder Cup. Um, I know we don't, you know, we, we want to avoid free ads, but I kind of had an idea. I want to get... Uh, maybe in the next newsletter, I'll do a little what's burning at the kill house Q and a, I want to get everybody's, I got to phrase the question properly, but like, what is the, 
not best or worst. What's the most notable commercial of the year? Like what, what commercial wins the year? Right. And that could be because it's so bad and we saw it so much, or it could be because it was so outrageous or because it was so effective. Uh, you know, you can kind of take that question anywhere you want to go. I, I think that the Jeter Wagoneer commercial has to be a finalist in that uh, in that award competition. So bad, it's good. I, I, I just, I mean, like nothing I've ever seen before. Like, I can't <laughs> believe he agreed to it. You know, well, like if I saw that, if I was in that commercial and I saw like the final cut, I'd be like, guys, this is awful. This is so lame and so bad. Like, it's unbecoming for the captain to do that. I, I can't believe it. It it appears like the captain will agree to just about anything these days, except putting on a cowboy hat uh, when Poppy and A Rod want him to. Which I I understand. I There's I, like multiple backstories there. They're trying to go. Yeah, and I didn't realize it. the backstories. Yeah, uh, but I kind of I, I actually saw that live by chance watching the pregame, and I kind of thought it was a little bit like. Maybe the captain's taking himself too seriously, but I guess there's some Red Sox scar tissue there. Very much. With that. So, uh, yeah, a little awkward interaction there on the on the pregame show. Speaking for, of the Wagoneer commercial, though, Neil, I would say that most Jeep people would say that the Wagoneer is not a Jeep. It's not keeping with the, the ethos of what Jeep and the brand stand for. Maybe, maybe it's a little too luxury for them. But I've only owned... I haven't been in one. I've only, they look at like amazing, but they're, they're like a suburban. I mean, they're massive, massive vehicles. Yeah. What I would say though, is we've only owned my household. We've only owned one Jeep. And of course my, my wife had a Jeep. It was amazing, but that's also because she didn't get a normal Jeep. It was a, uh, the Jeep Grant Cherokee, like summit extreme preserve with all the saddle leather and airbag suspension and everything. And, I think Jeep people, when I think of Jeep people, you know, they're the the rock climbers and they all got uh, lifts on them and everything else. And they usually have upside down bumper stickers because they say, oh, if you can read this, I'm having a good time or something like that. Some Sometimes mildly aggressive. Usually they have like a an eight to 10 inch or, or ten, eight to 10 foot flag extension sticking out the back. I don't really know what that's for, but uh, Midwest people. Southwest people, big rocking, climbing, desert Jeep communities. They they love that brand. It's almost like Subaru people. Once you get I into was Subaru, gonna say I would say Subaru and, and honestly, like on the low end of that's not low end, but it feels like Forerunners kind of stolen some market share with that community. A lot of Forerunners rolling around in the uh in the the earthy crowd. Toyota's a good um, rig. You know, I, for I, sure, this is some uh, news and, and, you know, you'll maybe go through this at one point in time in your life. There comes a moment in parenthood where you have to make a decision, and that is how are you going to move all these creatures that you've created around in this world? And you outgrow your, your midsize SUV. You realize that full-size SUVs are so ridiculously expensive and horrible for this environment. Like really, really bad. Like a, how much do you think like a suburban costs right now? Um, I'd say like 60 grand. You can double that. Really? It is crazy. Like, you're like paying, a macked out one? You're Not even for a macked out one. You're paying close to $100,000 for a baseline full-size SUV. Like, that's not even talking about, like, the very, very nice uh, Chevys, GMCs. Like, uh, if I wanted to go get a Denali SUV right now, it'd be, like, 120, 130. 
it, it's absolutely crazy. But you come to this life decision and a minivan enters it. And you have to make this, this decision because I think everybody, most people, at least I grew up riding in a minivan and my mom hated it. She, it, they were not stylish back in the day or anything like that. You had to do it just to move everybody around. Well, a couple of years ago, you know, when you have, you, you have multiples out of the gate and you add another one on top of that, you got three kids. There's five of us total. We got two dogs. Used to have three dogs, rest in peace, Samson. Um, you got a lot of things you got to move around. So we bought our first minivan. You know, it's been like five, six years ago now. Last weekend, we upgraded. And I'm proud to say we got a hybrid minivan. We switched up brands. We used to be a proud Chrysler family rocking that Pacifica. Almost every single rental car we get when we go on big content shoots, we always end up with Chrysler Pacificas. I love that rig. Unfortunately, it started breaking down on us. So I did the smart decision. Extended warranty, it shot. Had to replace the transmission again. So we went in and we ended up getting a Toyota that feels exactly the same as a 4Runner inside. Same displays, same gear shift, same steering wheel, everything else like that. But we got a Toyota Sienna hybrid. And this thing is amazing. It drives great. It handles great. The kids love it. Didn't get the bells and whistles. We don't need TV screens in the back when you got tablets that they you know, I've got to force them out of their hands as it, as it is. But man, I've never been so excited for a new minivan purchase. This thing is sweet, Neil. I, I'm honestly thinking about driving it up next week when you guys come into town just to show it off. That's how proud yeah. I am of it. Well, I don't think – I've heard this before. I, I, somebody, I played golf with somebody a couple years ago, uh, and I asked him I – was, I was getting married in, I think, six months before my wedding. I said, you got any advice? You know, older, successful gentleman. Got any advice for, for marriage? And he said he had some good advice. Uh, it was more just about like general life stuff. He was, and one of it was get a minivan before you think you need it. Almost like rip the bandaid off. He, and I, I don't think I'm ever going to have a problem with that because I'm always been a function over style guy, and I find minivans to be extremely functional. So you know, that's that's totally fine with me. The other advice he gave me was uh, find a babysitter. Find a really good babysitter and overpay them so that you can like be first in line. Uh, and then I think, well, one that's really hard to do right now is like uh, overpay for your first house so you can stay there longer. And I'm like, well, <laughs> listen, man, I don't know if any, <laughs> I don't know if you can. I think everybody's overpaying for their houses right now. I don't know if that's in the cards, but uh, th those are the three things that, that he sent my way. But the minivan thing is interesting. I, 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 I think that's a decision. That's going to be an easier decision for me than other people because I've never been like, "Oh, fuck that." I'm like, no. That honestly, every time I'm in a minivan, I'm like, "This is super functional, uh, easy to get in and out of, automatic doors, all that stuff." Now, question for you on the hybrid. That's you don't need like a. That's not a full. Like, you don't need a charger at home or anything for that. No charger. You drive it around. It charges up. And yeah. honestly, okay. we've been beating it up and down the roads. You already had a. You know, had to go down to Austin for a couple of days. The the gas gauge has not left full because we're not outside of like that big trip, you know, it wore down the yeah. battery and then, you know, coming back, she's like, yeah, I put, it took a little bit of fuel, but the battery naturally recharged everything else. that we're doing around town, short trips, everything else like that. It's great. She's like, I think I'm going to end up having to fill up like once a month. Well, you still got your truck though, right? I do. Of course you do. 
Well, uh, what am I going to, I'm not going to change it out with anything. It's paid off. I love that. No, that's, that's great. Like I would love to get a truck at some point in my life. I feel like it's a rite of passage. That'll be when the kid's definitely dead. That's when we get a pickup. That's when you become a man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Listen, we digressed digressed. You can hit up, uh, hit up Pete. See what he plans on doing with his old truck. God, that thing's sweet. It is sweet. The F two fifty logging or lugging firewood around. That thing's very. It's very nice to have around. I bet Pete's just, have, have, just have out. the truck ready if you need it. I wonder what his supply of firewoods at right now. Wonder if he's fully prepared, ready for winter. I don't know. I'm gonna see him tomorrow. Got a big. My sister in law got a big wedding this weekend here in New York City. Mm-hmm. So everybody's coming in town. Got a big weekend ahead. You and how often? Uh, you know, we see you in these tuxedos all the time. And, and sure. we know that you is probably got a lot of value out of this tux. Exactly. You purchased it. You're, you're very proud of it. I would say proud of it, but I, I would say it was, I was on the rental grind for a while there. And I was like, I, I bought I, maybe the first time in my life that I timed up a big purchase very well. And I, I would shout out my wife, Carson, for this. She kind of pushed me towards buying it in 2019 and it still fits. And it's, really just a good it was a good solid purchase that i've probably worn like eight or nine times over the last four years which is great it's incredible are you getting it dry cleaned and you're just you know keeping that thing moving i've thrown in a few new like shirts but like the this the suit itself has held up really really well you know Uh, or the tux itself a solid i always say this you got to have a couple really good suits because you never know when you're going to need them and i know a lot of people here might be thinking "Well, well i don't need that stuff but you never know when it's going to come up. And it, I always say it, it's always better to be overdressed for an occasion than underdressed. You, it, it sucks being the guy who shows up and you're like, man, I didn't know that the dress code was. But if you're not going for a suit and if you maybe if you're outside of Neil's demographic here where he has a wedding every single weekend, you don't quite need a tuxedo. That, that's just the time of life we're in. Of course. But – the, the lack of people out there who were confused when I talked about the travel blazer or, or sports coat, I think it's one of the most important purchases you can make and always have it on hand, never know when you're going to need it, but it'll always be there. And I'm very, very proud of that. And that kind of stands up right now where I'm at. My seasonal life is with your tuxedo purchase. So sure, happy to see the tux getting another, uh, another workout this weekend, probably. It is getting a workout this weekend. Are you going to be a party boy this weekend? Uh, yeah, I might dabble. Uh, you know, my 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 boy Barb's is coming in town. He always tears the dance floor up, so I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> I might see what he's working with. If he's got some new moves, I might try to try to copy some of those. But yeah, I'm excited. Is I'm he, excited. This is uh, this. I got one more in December, and then we're done for the year. That's I think eight this year. It's a lot. It's a grueling stretch. But this is a family one, so this is like you got to bring the noise for for the uh, for the fam. Of course, of course. Well, I mentioned that you were out in California last week. I went up to New York for a couple of days and then was down in Austin. Happy to report, one of our good friends, mutual friends here, Stuart, um, friend of the program. It's the first time I ever gave any sort of public speaking, uh, and, and very very nervous going into it. I thought it went over very well, Neil, for something that, uh, you know, only 25 people will ever see in their life. None of it recorded or anything else like that. I had so much fun doing it. Uh, I was a nervous wreck leading up to it because you don't really know what to expect or what they're kind of looking out of it, even though they tell you like 
talk about your life and your experiences and updates on what's going on in the world and then you know try to bring it full circle but when you're sitting in a room kind of you know people who are who are already made it in life you know and are still out there grinding like turning over some serious amounts of of cash it it kind of intimidated me so i'm happy i'm proud of myself of working through it um getting some chuckles but also staring but it, but it wasn't it wasn't lessons. like a, you didn't give a speech it was like a it was like a fireside chat very right? much yeah but you know you're like Which, oh yeah tell your you know give us your bio and i'm like well sh- i don't like my bio is not crazy interesting i think to some people it it is but you know i i've lived this life uh sure it did kind of i think gets, it's interesting gets boring over times well that's what you think true I, I, uh, I feel like a lot, a lot of that stuff, I think the nerves come from, it's all about delivery. You know, if you're, if you're, oh. it's, it's similar to these podcasts. Like if you're fired up to talk about something, it could be truly anything. Then it usually gets the audience fired up. I think that's contagious. And if you're confident in something, people just are like, oh yeah, <laughs> this guy knows, sure. this guy knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, ton of fun though. Awesome. Awesome. little trip. Um, my New York portion of it. This is the final booth that we're going to have before Veterans Day. I'm very, very excited to say that our proud partners, uh, Titleist, Fujoy, overall, all of the cushioning, I think they did an awesome thing. Earlier this fall, there's a college tournament, the Folds of Honor Collegiate, that people might have might have saw. There's a, you know, it was sponsored by Titleist. And there was a, they ran a couple different commercials during it. I was happy to be featured in one of them for Folds of Honor. We finished up some more filming last week. And if people want to check it out, I know they're going to put out a new kind of in-depth look that, at Folds of Honor, what the organization is, and kind of everything that they do. Um, but I'm going to be in it. I It's kind of uh, Dan, Lieutenant Colonel Dan Rooney, who's the founder of Folds of Honor, does leads it every single day he's one of the busiest people i know uh not only in golf but in business just he's in different city like multiple cities a day it's it's crazy the energy that this man has um but i think it's awesome highlighting a a good organization that does a ton for you know disabled service members in their higher education but really gold star families uh, and making sure that their kids are taken care of through all forms of education from, you know, private schools growing up all the way through uh, their secondary education. A great organization, very, very proud to be a part of and really tickled and couldn't say thank you like to Titleist and the, the folks there enough for including me in it. Proud to say I'm a Folds of Honor ambassador. Hell yes. Uh, well, I got to get an update. How'd the uh, Mogadishu mile go? The Moog Mile was good. Uh, I told you this uh, in one of our calls, though. Knocked it out. Very proud. Um, there are things that have changed, of course, with my body <laughs> since the last time that I've I've done it. I, I told you I, I wore my full plate carrier, and, uh, you know, the body changes over time. There's things that have gotten uh, expanded in places, have shrunk in others. Most of the shrinking is part to my muscle mass and adding fat around the love handles. So it got a little chafage going uh, in some spots, but it motivated me. And something that else motivated me too is kind of what 
you and the big guy have been kicking around a lot. So, I mean, we're moving into prime winter season. We set our goals at the beginning of the year. I don't know where you're at with your goals. I'm not asking for an update. But I think you came to me and said, hey, Randy updated, uh, got a new whoop because his battery in the old one kind of went kaput. And we're kind of looking, he's looking for uh, a little bit of accountability here. Let's see if we, instead of just the, the two of you, let's see if we can make a, a good uh, threesome out of this little tripod of fitness goals and, and see if we can not only take it to the end of the year, but kick off the new year and just, why, why can't we make this shit like our normal everyday life? Well, I've, I, it's, I've been a month off. This was an, so I should say this was an off month with the strenuous group, but August and September were, you know, were big months for the, for the 10 strain challenge for just the overall strain challenge. So I think, you know, you gotta take it easy, but I've maintained pretty well this month, but I'm ready to go in November. I need to get, you know, we need to get Randy. Maybe we just go with the simple, you know, you got to get 10 every day. Like to me, that's always been a really good black and white, very simple because there's some days where, you know, I could take Sonny on a couple long walks and get to eight. And then it's like, yo, you got to find a way to get to 10 now. Like go take another walk or like that's an off day though, right? So right. it's possible to get to 10 on an off day. It's possible to get to 10 walking 18 holes of golf, which to me is like when we do the challenges where it's like you're trying to get highest overall average strain, it's like that's when I'm going to, you know, bust a knee or something like that. <laughs> you know, it gets a little weird. My buddies are doing two a days just dumb shit because they're too competitive. Whereas I think the, the 10 strain for 30 straight days, like it, it gets inconvenient at times, but it, it has accomplished what I think is the most important thing with staying in shape is just making it a habit. It's like, you can either go find that 10 strain, like 30 minutes on the elliptical and a, and a quick circuit workout. That's going to get it for you. Right. Is that like, you know, am I going to be in peak physical shape? No, but then that leads to you wanting to go on a long run the next day. And then it, it just, it's the habit forms is what I found with that simple challenge. So we'll run it by the big guy and see what he thinks. All right. You heard it here. We're going to get on the 10 strain game. You, Neil, you've already been there. You're, you're very comfortable in that position, but now you got two, you've recruited two, two guys. It's going to yes. take a lot. I mean, I see Randy's schedule. He's out there. He's getting his yoga in all the time. He's playing a lot more golf, trying to get as much in before snowfall in Denver. Uh, and I would love to figure out a way to, like, combine that with, like, a recovery challenge. But we've always struggled. The recovery challenge is tough because if you get a hard workout in, it's harder to get a good recovery. Um, or the, the sleep challenge is always tough, too, because I just – I've been sleeping okay lately, but – you know, I'm, I work the night shift with Sonny, so I'm like 10, 30, 11, you know, and then I like to be up early. Like I, I really have, you know, I feel like I hate it when I feel like the enemy's up before me, Cody. I hate it. That's my guy. You know, if I get, if I'm out of, if I'm not out of bed before seven, I'm like, fuck man, I'm behind. I feel behind because it takes me a little while to turn the engine over, you know, and of course got to get my, got to get things going. My shower, my, my morning routine is, is pretty, uh pretty inefficient so if i'm up at seven we're not really doing much till eight and it, it's a lot better when it's six and i'm starting to grind at seven or you know taking sunny to the roof to do some fetch whatever it is 
Uh, but that gets harder when you, when you want it. Like if you want to do a sleep challenge, if I go to bed at 11 and I'm up at six, that's just not going to do it for the, for what the whoops telling me I need sleep wise. It's just not, it's not cutting it. You know, I'm not, I'm not the most efficient sleeper. I've, I've learned that a lot of, a lot of fits and starts at night for me. You're coming to the wrong guy. If you're looking for uh, advice on restful nights of sleep, but a lot of them are, uh, are not so much self-induced, but uh, uh, gifts that have been given to me over time through past experiences. So if you if you're looking for somebody, uh, I say this. You're not that guy. No, <laughs> don't don't come to me. Uh, I'm, uh, Yari calls I'll, me, me a, a tornado in bed. It's it's not good. What's your What do you go to bed when you get up? We uh, I lay in bed at ten o'clock. I my phone stops at ten. I read a little bit. What's something that I picked up from you? Which is, I do that every night too. And that really helps me shut the engine down. Uh, but it's still, I don't know. I'm always being told that I'm getting 70% of my sleep, you know? Yeah. It's like, well, fuck, that means I got to sleep till like 9am. It's not going to happen. What happens is that I probably stop reading about 1030 and I'll lay there honestly till 1130. And, And you are sound asleep at this point. Uh, and I'll just lay there and it's so hard. I, my mind just does not stop racing. And then I finally fall asleep. And then, uh, I usually wake up every morning at, at about five 30, but Sheesh. there are multiple, multiple wake ups and, and downs there. It, it got to the point right. where I, for some, I'm a believer that, uh, you know, I try to hydrate and everything else like that, but I used to wake up so many times during the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. And then I've read a whole bunch of stuff that's like, Hey, you're, you're overhydrating. If that's the case, you shouldn't be drinking that much water that close to bed. So I finally got that under control. But now I just uh well, what are you what are you reading before bed? Uh anything from like, you know, motivational books to a lot of it's nothing intense. I, I well, know. Well, see, that's that. what I found though. Like I enjoy reading like nonfiction or business books, but like I can't read those before bed because it turns my mind on. Versus like right now I'm kind of, st- I'm a little stuck, but I like the book, but it's, it's going slow. But the good news is it puts me to sleep pretty quick. I'm reading just a, basically a history of the Mongol empire, oh. which is pretty like dense, right? Yeah. You know, we're talking about faraway places back in the 1200s. And so for me, historical, you know, history books and just fiction when you can totally like, like none of this is related to my everyday life, right? It's truly just like reading a, Oh, I'm just like reading about like a long ago civilization. That helps me just like, oh my God, my eyes are closed. I got to put, put it, put it down and go to bed <laughs> instead of when I'm reading like a business book, it's like, oh God, dude, I could apply this to, you know, this is what we could do with the nest. This is what we could do, blah, blah, blah. And like, then that turns my mind on. So I try to avoid that. Uh, you know, uh, the last book that I finished, I, I just finished it two nights ago, um, and this is weird, just to give you a, a little case of what I've been reading. I know, you know, the NBA just kicked off, and I've, I've been trying to get back into my overall sports fandom because I feel like for a long time I just kind of let everything go because I have a million other things going on in my life. But the one thing that that's always stuck out to me, and this might not resonate with you at all, but growing up in Montana, some of the best high school basketball teams were from the Native American, you know, high schools that were on the reservation. They played a different style of basketball that was very, very fast-paced. Now it's a lot what you see in the NBA and majority of college teams, but that's that 
used to not be the case. So like in the the nineties, when I remember being a kid watching high school basketball, the game was so, so fast and they would just literally just put up crazy amount of points on all the other high school teams. And, and it, it blew my mind. So I picked up this book. It's actually called brothers on three. And it's about one coach that grew up, uh, on reservation in Montana and then, you know, played high school basketball and then went to college and played at a, a you know, division two school and then came back and, and started coaching. And it was a long time basketball coach there and really is the one who got this form of, uh, you know, native American offense going where it's extremely fast paced, where you, you literally are just touching the ball. There's hardly any dribbling going on. And the goal is to get a shot up as fast as you possibly can. It's a fascinating, weird uh, cross-section between Montana history and basketball, which I, I absolutely love. Uh, and, you know, it kind of filled the bucket up. It was... it was That sounds great. It was funny. Uh, and it's something that I actually... I'm going to hand it off to Big next week when he's in town because I think he would get a kick out of it. Um, anyway, what's... Uh, how, how's Sunny Girl doing? Any crazy updates? Sonny's good. Uh, she went through her first heat cycle, so that was kind of like, of course, Whoa. it happened at a time when we're traveling a, a ton. But listen, we managed through it. It's all it. It's all good. Got her scheduled to to get fixed for January. Um, so she's be, she's become a lady. She she all grown up. First birthdays in November. Uh, her brother Elvis uh, broke his leg Ooh. about a month, two months ago. So. He had to get like a surgery. I think he just snapped it being an idiot in the yard. Um, so he's, but he's on the mend. I think he's, he's off the leash now. He, used, he couldn't really, you know, control himself unless he was on the leash. So I think he's back to roaming around the yard. Got him all, all stitched up and got a, got a plate in there. So, you know, these labs, they know how to get into some mischief, but I have zero complaints about Sonny. She's been like a just 10 of 10 dog year one. It is an adjustment feeling like keeps me a little more homebound. It makes life a little more complicated, but she's uh she's a great companion. Uh and uh found a found a dog sitter in the neighborhood to help us out when we're traveling. Oh, perfect. You know, so we're starting to we're starting to figure it out. You know? I love that. Yeah. Good good for you guys. Now, uh, with the the season changing, it, does Sunny Dawn uh you know fancy sweaters and stuff when No, no, when I will not dress my dog up. Carson does does have a Halloween costume Ooh. for which I said cool one day a year if you want to dress her up but I'm I'm a I'm you know no offense to anyone out there but I am not a dog clothing person what's, I just don't want to do it what's Sunny dressing up as for Halloween uh, a nun <laughs> okay I I cannot... we call her for some reason we call her nunny a lot so we just okay. were like let's make her a nun and then I might be Saint Rapio uh, <laughs> I got my my staff that I wanted the uh, the roost the New York roost championship the shepherds open so might might don some type of saint rapio thing so you know just something something fun well i cannot wait to see the pictures from that neil uh i provided a, a little update on the developments going on in my neck of the woods with my neighbor larry and nobody's ever really heard of larry before but he's an interesting character he's you know definitely getting up there in age and uh, the couple of run-ins that I have had with him have always been interesting. Last week, he kind of took everything to a different, I, I would definitely say a, a different level uh, with what he usually says face-to-face -to, -face to people. Definitely one of those 
he kind of believes some crazy stuff. Um, well, but he, just, just to confirm, how far away does he live? He probably is oh, like a mile down the road from me. Okay, but same neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Larry decided to take it to the, the great social media app next door. And, great great in, in air quotes. And I think uh, this might start being a recurring segment for us. Uh, and we're going to start looking around. So if anybody out there has any great next door segments, please email them uh, to me. Cody. Or, or hit the listener line, which yeah, is listener line. 833-330-8725. We're, we're taking, eight, say again. Oh, yeah. That's 833-330-8725. We we hear you people. Yes, we do. All right. We're we're trying to step up our game. Uh and I think towards the end of the year we're gonna get a, a big a couple big clean out voicemail special episodes where maybe we get all the boys together and we I just, think that'd be good. We should get the chop session boys on and, and hash it out together. Yep. Uh so Larry decided to take it to a next door and uh you know, it, it caused a little bit of stink. So i I'm just gonna read what he posted. Hello, neighbors. Over the last few weeks, I've been digging a hole in my backyard. It started on a whim, but gradually had taken over most of my free time. This goal is got, this hole has gotten so big that I need to get more effective tools. Shovels are just not cutting it. My wife has refused to help me. Does anyone know where I can rent an industrial strength equipment like a bulldozer, perhaps a bobcat? I need to know what's down there. Now, Larry said some weird things to me in the past. He's definitely what I would say somebody who who's out there uh, borderline like conspiracy theories on things. But this one was new to me. I don't know exactly what Larry thinks. It, it reminded me a lot of when I was a kid and, you know, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, what's on the opposite side of of the earth? You know, when you first look at a globe and you're like, oh, I live here and what's on the the complete opposite side of that oh well we can dig a hole to china sure and i don't know if larry uh believes that quite yet but i i don't exactly know what he thinks is down there and maybe he might be smarter than all of us and think that you know texas we got rich oil uh spot out here maybe he, he's gonna find a new oil spot who knows but there is an overwhelming amount of comments to his post from all community members a lot of them concerned about larry uh, and other ones trying, of course, to to walk the dog a little bit further to get some more information out of him. So one of our neighbors said, hey, you know, you can go to the Bobcat rental place. Uh, it, it's right next to this location. But what exactly are you looking for in the ground? Larry replies uh, to, to, the, to the lady, I just need to know what's down there. And then another one said, obviously, it, it took a turn here and people started having a little bit of fun with Larry. And somebody just pointed out, please, Larry, you know, keep your sanity, which Larry immediately fired back with mind your own business. All right. Mm. So um, there continued to be a little bit of discord, people pointing out that we're not over oil fields right here. We're, it's very firm rock. Uh, we live in a place that there's multiple concrete factories around people pointing that out that, you know, the as soon as you get through, it's only going to be about you know, a couple feet of soil before you actually hit uh, bedrock and it's going to be extremely firm lime that you're going to hit. And he said, you know, somebody pointing out, hey, once you find the rock, what are you going to do? He goes, 
Larry said, you know, rock, that's just not enough information. I need to know more. I need to know what's down there. Something else is down there. I just need to know. Finally said, somebody followed up and said, Larry, what do you think is down there? And Larry goes, question. I don't think I should say it. Wow. So now, very concerned about Larry. Uh, I flew a little drony F baby, the mini drone, uh, over his location. It's it's not a big hole. This this is it's it's shocking how small this hole is. So I need to go meet up with Larry. We had a busy, busy week this week. I I thought I was gonna be able to fit it in there, but my plan is next week prior to uh getting busy and with the NIT, I'm gonna go have a cup of coffee with Larry and figure out what exactly is going on there. So more to report there from Larry. Okay. I might have to get in the next door game. I think so. I, I'm. This is very uh, exciting, and I can only I, can imagine. I'm curious what Carroll Gardens is burning on. Yeah. Well, right. Speaking- I know. I know a big topic in the neighborhood has been uh, requiring people no more trash on the sidewalks Ooh. in New York for. I think mainly like businesses and and big buildings, but I, I think it's brownstones and like smaller residential units too. So I'm sure there's a lot of talk of trash cans. And where am I going to put my trash cans and all that stuff? But I'll, I will report back. Maybe we have a little next door segment because I haven't really dug in to next door, but it seems like some people are like, seems like a very active platform. Very active. I would say uh, if people think there's crazy stuff on Facebook from, you know, what your parents and aunts and uncles and everything else are posting out there next door, you can amplify that by about uh, a thousand. Uh, it kind of feels like the wild, wild west out there. I don't think people realize that their name is actually attached to some of the things that they're saying, but we'll suss through it. If you got a story, please hit up the listener line uh, and we'll get it dialed in. Speaking of Carol Gardens, Neil, um, I had a fellow New Yorker reach out on the listener line and kind of had some things to say about you. Okay, let's let's play it. Hi, um, I'm calling requesting a mea culpa, actually several from... Neil Schuster for, first of all, the mispronunciation of Stuyvesant High School, um, which he should know as a New Yorker. Um, Secondly, I would just like to say that I live in the same neighborhood in Brooklyn as Mr. Schuster and his description of how he drives to the airport just reeks of Google Maps, like, brain and makes absolutely no sense neil you should be taking atlantic avenue thank you very much for your time wow appreciate the call shout out to a neighbor uh so we'll, we'll take this there's a two-parter here uh one i i think your issue in the mea culpa needs to come from mr kvv and mr tron carter <laughs> i pronounced stuyvesant properly they talked me off it and said they're like almost made fun of me for it um so i think you know that I appreciate that, that the name was pronounced wrong, but I'm, I'm not your guy, uh, neighbor. And two, okay, here's the issue with Atlantic. Here's the issue with Carroll Gardens in general. A lot of one-way streets. So I have taken Atlantic to the airport. Now, we got to talk about which airport. If you're going to Newark or if you're going to LaGuardia, both of them, let's talk. I'm, I'm more going to Newark these days. Atlantic Avenue, getting to Atlantic on bond street which is a one-way north is a it's a, just a parking lot it depends on what time of day right and yes you have to pay a like eight dollar toll to go through the battery tunnel 
the Hugh Carey tunnel, I believe is what it's called now. Uh, but it is so worth it because it gets you to the, like automatically onto the West side highway, which is where you want to be to get into the Holland tunnel. If you go Atlantic Avenue, yeah, you can go for free over the Brooklyn bridge, but then you get stuck on canal street and you get, you're basically at the back of the line during rush hour. So, but the key is the entrance to the Hugh Carey tunnel is closed. Like there's a, like a secret entrance over by the tunnel that they close from four 30 to seven. So you got to time it properly. If you're going at rush hour then you, you can't really take the tunnel to begin with. What I've learned is I got away from this. It used to be a core tenant of my living in New York City. You got to fly in the mornings, period, point blank, like six, seven, eight a.m. flights. I've taken like the last three months, for some reason I've flown out, mainly because I like, oh, I need to take care of Sonny until Carson's off work, basically. I've had a few like 6 p.m., 7 p.m., 9 p.m. flights. And it's just, it's, uh, you're a ball of stress trying to get to the airport. A, you know, 30 minute, what should be a 20 or 30 minute drive literally turns into 90 minutes, close to two hours. And you're like, I've like, I truly don't feel like I can leave early enough for the airport. So what's the point? I might as well just fly at like the first flight out the next morning if I'm going to do it. So we're getting back to our roots, Cody, on uh, just time of travel out of New York City. Uh, the other thing I want to bring up, you want to think that me taking the battery tunnels crazy. I, I often try to go the Verrazano, just go through Staten Island because y y there's always traffic on Staten Island, but at least you're moving. And so if you're coming at Newark from the South, sometimes it's better. It's just really the bottlenecks on the tunnels is where you get, you get stuck. Getting through the Holland tunnel most of the afternoon and evening is just, it sucks. So that's why I don't take Atlantic Avenue, but I appreciate the call. Any, uh, do you consider yourself a proud New Yorker? Um, that's a, that's a heavy, that's a heavy question. Uh, no, no, I think I'm, I'm, uh, I don't want to say a pretender. I feel like I know my way around, but I definitely don't feel, I wouldn't identify myself as a New Yorker. Okay. So 13, 14 years into a city, you, you still don't feel as if you so want. I was four in college and then it was three and now another one, so about eight years. Okay. So I know my way around. I but I feel like uh, via Google a, Maps. A very, no, I I can get around without Google Maps. That's not the issue. But you, I use Google Maps because it's really a traffic thing, right? It's like Correct. it's weighing which which traffic option. But I've learned like Google Maps will send you to the tunnel, and it's like I know that's not right. Like I've told you know Lyft drivers, Uber drivers, like yo, which way is it taking you? And they're like, it's taking us you know, through Manhattan. I'm like, no, I want to go to the Verrazano, like go the other direction because I know what's going to happen. You're going to go to this entrance. And sometimes like, it still tells you to go through this entrance to the tunnel. And the map doesn't like highlight that that entrance is closed or it doesn't know what happens on the battery tunnel during rush hour. They, they change the lanes. So there's only one lane mm. into the city and there's three coming out. And so like, it doesn't really take that into account. Uh, and then, it gives you like, hey, yes, right now it's an hour, but like as you're getting into the tunnel, it's going to an hour 15, like in real time, it's like five minutes are getting added every minute to your, <laughs> like to your trip. It's so brutal. So it, it's just very dynamic. So yeah, I'm using Google maps. I'm using all the tools at my disposal to get around the city. Very good. I love it. That was a uh, map talk with Neil Schuster. I think that would be actually be a fun game to play. Maybe we we go up to the city, something like that. I take your phone away. I get you some paper maps and give you a couple uh, 
waypoints and see how long it takes you to get there. Um, I would, I, seriously, I, I feel very confident in, in, I would not say I'm a New Yorker, but I feel like uh, one of the joys of life was I feel very confident getting around the city. I feel extremely knowledgeable about the subways. Uh, an out-of-towner asked me on the subway, excuse me, can I ask you a question? And I, she's on the wrong train. I was like, here's what we got to do. We got to get you off at Broadway Lafayette. You're going to have Ooh. to get on the B line because right now you're on the F train and we got to get you going over, you know, you're, you're on the, you're technically on the right line right now, but the last stop before they split is coming up. Uh, do you know how I know you're not a New Yorker? Because wow. if you, you truly were a New Yorker and somebody asked you that question, you probably get told to fuck off. Uh, that's how I know. So that, I think that's the litmus test here. Uh, and, and I don't, that's the thing. I don't pretend like I'm not a, uh, I'm proud to live here and I'm, I feel like I'm very knowledgeable. I feel like a good citizen in the city, but I don't feel like it's, um, I, I wouldn't say, I think it'd be inauthentic if I identified as a New Yorker. I just don't, I don't feel that maybe that, you know, maybe that changes with time. Who can say, Hey, there you go. We'll, we'll keep you, uh, posted for that. Uh, Neil has no issues of course with his uh, directions or distance. Other people that I know are dialed in with distance is our partners, Precision Pro Golf. Do you know, Neil, we have our own rangefinder and carrying case at Precision Pro Golf? I did know that, and it's it's good-looking case, black and green. Black and green, Wayward Drive logo. We partnered up with them, of course, to customize that NX10 rangefinder with your favorite NLU designs that you can rep the pod on the course. Uh, check that out at precisionprogolf.com forward slash NLU and use code no laying up to save 20% off the rangefinder. And $20. $20, $20 excuse me. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Very, very important. Uh, $20 on that rangefinder with code or excuse me, forward slash NLU. We've been using that NX10 for almost uh, a year, really almost, you know, two years now. It's a rangefinder. You know, this thing's a tank. It locks on lightning quick. Plenty of additional features, slope, switch, HD optics, magnetic cart mount. It's our go-to choice on the golf course. You will not find any better customer service from our friends at Precision Pro either. You got free battery replacements and industry-leading customer service with a 90-day money-back guarantee. There's a reason Precision Pro has been our trusted partner for years. Please Go check them out, precisionprogolf.com forward slash NLU to save $20 and get your NLU rangefinder and carrying case with code no laying up. I also know, uh, you know, I, they, they always have good stuff going along. It's a good time for people that are out there. You can, hey, if you're a golfer and you know that your significant other is struggling on what to get you for Christmas, we got holidays coming up. You're going to have gift guides coming out soon, Neil. I'm very yep. excited every time you send those out. Um, I think, you know, a rangefinder, a little rangefinder refresh is always good for everyone. Agreed. Uh, we had uh, another, so the the wonderful lady who called in, uh, it's claiming you to be a New Yorker, I actually called in with some good info that was uh, uh, timely for us from the last booth episode. Uh, here we go. Calling back to say that read the last booth episode and the discussion of the third prong on American plugs, sometimes being plastic. My, I don't know if this is worth anything, but my astronomy teacher, my astronomy professor in college told me that 
the reason for the third plug on American plugs or third prong is if the unit is like a little bit out of the outlet and exposing some metal and something should fall and hit the the hot prong on top, then obviously it could start a fire. So the third prong is the ground and now they're moving towards putting those uh, automatically upside down so that the prong, the gr- ground prong can act as a protective like measure in case something's hanging out of the socket. All right. Good night. <laughs> I think we nailed that with the, with the, the ground prong. I, I, I agree. Th- We're spot on. Yeah. Uh, I would agree though. It probably is a better design to have the, the grounding prong up top to prevent things from falling. That, that does kind of make more sense. I agree. I have yet to see that, though. I have. I, yeah. I, I don't know what she's talking about. And, and it was, I was kind of concerned when she started talking about, like, her, her, her source of this information was her astro- or astronomy uh, teacher. Astronomy teacher. Man of many talents. Exactly. But I have well, yet when to she see said that, I was worried that we were going to get a, a weird response to what the uh, third prong is. <laughs> Which, hey, we, we, would be, we would discuss that as well. But that this all, makes sense. All calls and theories welcome to the Trap Draw listener line. Again, that's 833-330-8725. Let us know what you think. We are we are open. Great feedback. Like I said, we're listening. And uh, we're going to get the rest of the boys all together. And we're going to have a little listener line party. Uh, Neil, this podcast is not over. Uh, thank you to everybody for sticking along this long. But I'm very excited here because I was able to do an interview with two guys that I know very well. And I'm going to say, uh, first and foremost, the reason why I know them well and uh, the reason why we had the opportunity to do this is because my wife is employed at their company. So there you go for that. But somebody who I have been very familiar with and looked up to as a not only a military leader, but uh, a leader uh, in and out of uniform. He's an awesome, awesome gentleman. He is Vice Admiral Mike Lefevre. Retired now, but retired as a three-star general, uh, proud Navy officer. I try to get as many Navy jokes in there as I possibly could. Uh, and his partner, the founder of the the company that they both work at together now, Concentric Advisors, Mr. Roderick Jones. Now, these names, people aren't going to understand who these people are because when you talk of military officers, people think of the Votels and McChrystals and McRavens and my my guy miller well all of those officers had a very strong number two somebody who is not out there completely leading the way but usually was in the role of their director of operations their uh executive assistant and it just so happened that uh mr retired now uh mike lefevre usually was that man he has a long and decorated service uh, prior to re- or post retirement, he went on and became CEO of Concentric, again the company that Roderick founded. Now, what is Concentric Advisors? I had no clue about this world, no clue about this industry at all. But basically, what they do is they solve security concerns for individuals, companies, um, and basically, what we're talking about is like, you know. Anywhere from physical securities for high net worth individuals to support to family offices to cybersecurity to intelligence support. It's a wild world out there. And I always thought, wow, this is this is kind of interesting because when you think of personal bodyguards and stuff, I immediately think of like 
you know, Elon, and we've talked and, and you know, we've, we've seen videos out there of Elon's personal security when he was in uh, anywhere. We most recently probably talked about it when he was at the World Cup and seeing how his guys operated uh, around him then. And then obviously other celebrities such as, you know, Taylor Swift to Beyonce to the Kardashians, you name it. They all have private security because anywhere they go, people literally uh, stalk them. So Concentric kind of works in that that world. And it's a lot more in-depth than people would imagine. Now, these two and why they're on the podcast is not to necessarily talk about Concentric, the company, again, that they work at, but they wrote a book called Endgame First. It's a great, I would say a tool because it tells great stories from their backgrounds. But most leadership books, uh, specifically from military members, retired officers, people who have have been there and done and seen different things usually are just a smattering of war stories. And you don't really know uh, what to take out of that because it's hard to translate to the civilian population. Well, they did an excellent job on this one with Mike telling a story and then Roderick really translating that to the, uh, the space that he knows most the entrepreneurial world through successes and failures. He had a, his first startup completely failed um and the pivot that he took and kind of lessons that he's learned over time to get to where they're at now and i want to highlight this because anybody that's out there that is works at a small business runs a small business works at a a fortune 500 company any anybody can learn something from this book by just based off the way that they uh laid it out you can find the book endgame first on amazon you can find it at their website concentric advisors.io and i will say this they're not out there just making a ton of money off this selling of this book everything goes to the foundation that they started the 188 foundation which uh low-key has done some crazy things in the world the last really three four years and i know with all the world events going on right now they're getting ready to do some more and what i say like crazy things is that they firmly believe that every human on this world, uh, should, if they find themselves in a, a precarious situation that's something that is not of their uh, own doing, that they deserve a chance for a better life. They believe that they have the moral responsibility and an honor to assist those who need it most, meaning rescue operations. So they kicked off this foundation at the collapse of Afghanistan where they moved 300 and some odd people outside, uh, moved them from you know the airfield in Kabul uh, to a, a third country location without the assistance of State Department or the military or anything else like that. They literally got some of their most well-known clients, get, you know, raised funds as fast as they could and basically started renting out jets and private hangars and private pilots and doing some crazy things to get... Uh, innocent Afghans out of country as fast as they possibly can for them to live a better life at the, the onset of the conflict in uh, Ukraine, they did the exact same thing. They moved in very, very quickly identified personnel who, um, who no longer wanted to be there, who were directly in harm's way and started moving them to other European countries who openly accepted them and provided them uh, you know, a path forward for what their new life is going to be. Uh, it's horrible situations where 
these conflicts take place, a lot of people forget about the actual human element of it. And they just look at who is the good guy, who is the bad guy, and don't realize that 99.9% of, pe- of the people that are actually there are completely innocent and deserve uh, you know, a path forward, uh, a way to live their life as free with as many, as many opportunities as anybody else uh, has in front of them. And they're using their foundation uh, to provide people that. And I think it's, it's really, really cool. I think it's uh, something that a lot of like government organizations should lean more into. There should not be this bureaucratic process for all this shit to go through. Uh, and I'm happy uh you know, happy to share this story, and I hope a lot of people out there go pick up the book because it's truly, like I said, a lot of people can learn stuff from it. Well, fire it up, baby! All right, I'm glad you got. I'm glad you brought in some qualified people to talk world events <laughs> t- this week. I know. All right, that's it for us, Neil. Uh, I'll see you next month here on the booth. Excited. Have a. Uh, I'm excited to see you next week. Good luck. Uh, even though we're going to be fir- fierce competitors next week. Uh, you know, I'm sure we'll we'll share a couple pops so and, and laugh about it. Happy Veterans Day to everybody out there. They you will not hear from us until post Veterans Day, and then uh, we'll come back around in November with probably some some gift guide options and everything else like that. But until then, I'll see everybody. But here is Mike and Roderick, gentlemen. Welcome to the program. Great being apart, Cody. Looking forward to it. First of all, I'll start with Roderick. Where? Wh- I'm talking about the book. That's why you guys, That's this is why I got the time with you guys, because I know you're both very, very busy. Where did the genesis of writing a book come from? Because I know this takes a, a ton of time, just putting thoughts on paper before we even get to editing and publishing and all that other stuff. Um, I mean, that's a really good question, actually. And uh, the genesis of the book comes from uh, sort of my relationship with Mike and us talking about crises generally. And that's actually sort of not necessarily, I don't, I can't actually remember too many disagreements I've had with Mike, but we were just having this discussion about, you know, former uh, military people writing books about business. And um, Mike had worked at the McChrystal book and uh, McChrystal group, sorry, and they have lots of books and things coming out. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm not entirely sure how some of these things relate to business. And, you know, they're kind of really good at military tactics and I, I, they miss a, miss a leap sometimes. And so, and then anyway, then we, we go into the COVID crisis and, you know, we're having to do lots of things. And it became apparent that Mike has this like incredible macro experience about managing crises, uh, particularly in Pakistan. But, you know, not only there, but, you know, managing humanitarian disasters and military crisis and all those things. So Mike's telling me these stories uh, about various things he's done which are incredible and and i found myself in this position as a translator essentially i'm like oh okay that's really interesting about um you know how you had to you know refit the helicopters to do humanitarian <laughs> versus, versus versus offense work like so how about how does that apply to the company and i was like well, okay well our company's just turned upside down in this crisis we're no longer doing what we used to do we can complain about it or we can refit the people we currently have to do different functions right and so so i was like doing this translation effect and then he said this really profound thing to me he said when i landed in in pakistan to respond to the earthquake crisis i was there 24 hours and my boss arrived and poked me in the chest and said What's your endgame, Lafiba? How are we going to get out of this? And I just thought, Mike, that's totally profound. And that's where the title of the book comes from. Because if I'd have thought about that uh, when I was running a startup company uh, in cybersecurity, I would have planned 
that engagement completely differently. This is going to come to an end. How do you want it to end, basically? Um, it's almost a profound philosophy point. But like in business, it's really important. But of course, in the middle of the pandemic, it was really, really important to think about how the pandemic's going to end. How do we want to come out of this? So that phrase essentially drove much of them what we did in the company and how we positioned ourselves to come out of it. And I can say it was really effective. We came out of the company with the highest growth that companies, we, sorry, we came out of the crisis, the pandemic, with the highest growth the companies ever had. So we knew that some of the lessons that we applied in the pandemic were really useful and we really wanted to share those. So that's kind of the where the, the book came from, essentially, that, that set of conversations and the lessons we learned through that period. Any notes from how you remember that, Mike? No, that's that's pretty much it. It was funny how we how we got to this point. Like you said, I was at McCrisp Group and team of teams, and some of the feedback we got from some of the Fortune 50 companies was, hey, this all works great, but this is all military stuff. And so the brilliance of it is what Roderick had mentioned, and that's his translation of, hey, these big, you know, incredible events that we were involved in, like yourself, and and how does that translate to the entrepreneur world, which is was, uh, you know, right in Roderick's uh, wheelhouse. So it's really, that's what makes it so dynamic. I think it's so much fun. You guys hit a lot of key points there on the head is, first of all, translating knowledge that you've gained in previous life, applying that to the businesses that you that you both run now. Uh, and we'll get into Concentric and, and everything that it does a little bit later on. But do you think that without your your knowledge and background from being at the McChrystal Group, going through the process of writing Teams of Teams, things that you learn there, do you think this book would end up as successful and as well thought out as it is? Yeah, I'll take a stab at it. I, I think so. You know, it's these invaluable lessons that you learn, you know, through uh, through my career that, you know, that we all that creates and that there have was themes of, of what made it successful. And so the idea that from the earthquake experience and from some of the other operations we conducted and then back into Pakistan and then happened to be there through the flood, but also during the full spectrum of operations from counterterrorism to the full scale ops. Those key lessons and picking up trends that that we thought that, you know, Roderick kind of said, hey, Mike, you use some great input to be able to share with folks and to share those ideas and experiences to be able to help. It's made it fun and, and exciting. I, well, I think I think one of the things that, um, you know, so I, in, in a 300 years ago, I, I had sort of did my education in history and would probably fancy myself as writing a history book, but nothing like this. But what and what this is really is more of a manual and i think that's that's how we wrote it as almost like a user manual and and i think in our minds when we were writing the book as well we we uh, thought about it as a potentially a training course as well and something you could lecture on um obviously when when you put something out there you don't know how people are going to respond to it and so it, we'll see where that goes but um i think we did think of it as a manual which is a different way of writing you know and that, and again mike had got mike's got that experience in terms of uh, um, you know, there's performance training things that he's done post career, actually, uh, post sort of Navy career. So, so I think that's that 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 definitely fed into the um, the architecture of how we were designing it. Yeah, I think that's the one thing that I that reading it. It's very easy to read because you are it. You guys wrote it like it's a manual. There's checklists involved, but at the end of the day, you do a really good job of circling back to the key points and making sure that the reader of this, the person who 
you know, obviously might be in a time of crisis or a business leader who potentially could be in a time of crisis knows where the checkpoints are at to go back and, and they can easily pick it back up. There's a ton of uh, a wealth of knowledge that's in this. And I hope everybody that's listening to this picks it up because it doesn't matter what form of industry that you're in from public to private to government to you know startups all the way up to, to Fortune 500 companies, you truly can learn something from everything that you guys have applied to this. Now, Roderick, I think, you know, most people I'm sure j- want to jump to Mike's background and talk about him. And, you know, I know, CB, more interesting than I know Navy, <laughs> I know Navy officers have no issues writing books. Right? <laughs> I, I, I think that comes with, you know, you get out of the Navy, they say, here's your manuscript. You want to you know, just figure right. out what topic. But not all of them are very good though. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> but I, I want to start with you, Roderick. Give us a little bit about your background, uh, you know, where you started, obviously, uh, a ton of, you know, y- your background is very, very, uh, I find interesting, not only from everything that you did governmental, but now as an entrepreneur and starting these businesses and, and really, you know, scaling them up to the way that they're at. Um, could you give us a brief rundown of kind of how you got here today? Yeah, I think it's the kindest thing is to say my background's eclectic. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I obviously um, grew up in uh, Britain, uh, born in Birmingham. My family's from there, and as I say, trained as a medieval historian. Really, I mean, that was I was always really like that. Um, but then uh, joined the police in London when I was twenty three. Um, had absolutely no idea I was going to stay doing that. Just thought, oh, I, I just I, I don't want to do anything else academic. I'm like completely over using long words uh that nobody quite understands so let, let me go do that and just found it hilarious honestly i mean it was sort of like just kind of policing london is just like the twilight zone i mean it's just like everything that goes can go wrong goes wrong all the time you know it was just sort of this bizarre slightly unreformed space at the time you know i mean i think the river police still had cutlasses when i joined you know i mean it was it was just like this kind of like slightly you know odd institution anyway after a couple of years you qualify and i I joined something called special branch which does all the national security work and rapidly got involved in just a, a a wide variety of things i was very fortunate to just be selected for lots of things, did some really fascinating stuff around counter espionage. Was uh, did the first um, production of uh, digital evidence in an espionage trial at court. Um, did a ton of you know Islamic terrorism stuff before it was trendy, as it were. So this is like ninety seven. You know, we're just sort of starting to get into that. What, did serious crime as well, actually, because I was still a, I was a, I was a qualified detective. I'd forgotten about that part of my career, honestly, and but for six <laughs> months went out and did like serious crime. And I was just watching this show called Top Boy on Netflix, which is about uh, Northeast London gangsters. And I was like, oh, I actually did this job. It was kind of, you know, we were sort of like, you know, developing informants and running, uh, you know, assets against, you know, incredibly violent gangsters. Uh, so that was, that was super fun. And then, you know, like everyone, everyone's life pivots on 9-11, right? You know, we're, we're in that space. And uh, I've done a lot of Irish uh, work in Ireland as well because it was Britain's main main issue for a long time. And then so 9-11 happened and, uh, you know, just incredibly busy. I was like really, you know, had we'd done so much. I'd been involved in these, uh, you know, European Al-Qaeda jobs and stuff. So we were really, our knowledge was a lot higher, I think, in some spaces in, in the US. So called in to do a lot of that. 
and they ran a protection team, uh, so like close protection, bodyguard stuff uh, for um, government ministers. Lots of people wanted to kill. And then my wife said, this is uh, not super fun. We're going back to America <laughs> so, or going to America. So ended up going to America, started a PhD in Berkeley, um, was bored of that within like two months. Just, you know, couldn't, couldn't go from one thing to the other and started to just um, realize that, you know, there's this world of private security. Got involved with uh, the Gates Foundation initially through Bill Gates's father, provide security for some trips they were doing into Haiti to look at some AIDS clinics there. And from there, from that consultative work, Concentric was born more or less, today's company. I think what I would say about Concentric is there's lots of security companies that sort of stop at different stages. The journey's really hard, you know, to go. And, and, and so you, you can choose really to, to build a, a, a build a company or, or make money. And sometimes the two are in conflict. You know, you don't make a lot of money building a company for a long time, but then you do the rewards at the end. And I always really wanted to build a company. So, you know, just basic things like giving people great health benefits and just, you know, kind of building that kind of thing over time. And so I did that. I think, you know, where we are today is a testament to building a company versus, you know, kind of other versions of it. Um, and just have been involved in so many fascinating things along the way. I've, I've managed to, you know, brief DNI and DOD and all this kind of stuff. I think it was just because I was in, involved in counterterrorism before it was trendy. So you sort of know the history and you've got like that really deep knowledge of it. Um, and then today I'm like really fortunate. You know, I have Mike as CEO of the company. We, you know, we coach and run, he coaches and runs the team really well. And then, you know, I'm able to get involved in, in growth and where we go next, you know, think about whether where, where we want to aim the company and what things we want to get involved in. And, and that is incredibly fluid all the time. Um, you know, it's very hard to predict what we'll get involved in and where we go. We have a strategic plan and then you, you kind of, you know, you, you move based on um, where the threats are in the world. But I mean, the one thing about the book and the company, which I, if you'd have asked me when I first uh, emigrated to America 20 years ago, it felt like being in security was kind of like, you know, the world's peaceful. Everyone, don't, Google says, don't be evil. It's all good, you know. But, I mean, where are we now, you know? It's like we've just written a book about crises, and there's a lot of those. <laughs> we have a security company that's busier than it's ever been. It's, it's just an absolute footnote to what's happened in the world, you know, in the last 20 years, honestly. So um, as much as I'm pleased with the success of the company and the book and things, I'm kind of, there's part of me that's a little sad in some ways that, you know, it turns out that that is the part of the things I've done in my life that has been the most valuable, you know. I wish it were another way. and I wish everyone was reading medieval history books and not asking me for security <laughs> advice, you know, but... There we are. There we go. We brought it back around. I love it. Mike, what about you? Uh, you know, well, as you started out, you know, maybe guys, so I like writing books. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, yeah, it was kind of a, a crazy career because went to the Naval Academy uh, trade school there in, a, in Annapolis and then uh, became a ship driver, surface warfare officer. So cruisers, destroyers. Even at a hydrofoil at a Key West, which was a blast. Uh, it was like somebody giving you the keys to a sports car and don't screw it up. Uh, but had command at every level and um, had been involved in and out with uh, Joint Special Operations and the SEALs and uh, doing some fun stuff. And then uh, lo and behold, I'm on a strike group. Um, just did uh, Bright Star, which is the largest multinational exercise. This was in 2005. Um, under General Abizade, uh and Doug Lute was the 
the you know general loot was the J3. But just finished that. My Marines were committed to uh, Fallujah to do uh, support the elections in 2005, the first elections there for General Casey in Iraq. So offloading those, but I was coming around through the Straits of Hormuz, <laughs> you know, the earthquake happened and got a call and goes, hey, what do you think about the earthquake? And I said, hey, <laughs> pretty interesting. He goes, yeah, keep offloading your Marines. You know, we may use your ships later, but, you know, have a great day, you know. And about six hours later, he calls, he goes, hey, Mike, uh, when you're passing Bahrain, you know, hop on a helo with about a handful of your guys and you're going to go with, you're going to go into Pakistan <laughs> and, uh, you know, do the assessment and lead the earthquake relief effort. So um, that that really kind of changed the dynamic, you know, and uh, so I ended up being there for seven months, leading the joint task force, which was uh, in a coalition, had some Australians with me and the NATO forces came in. But incredible build from, you know, a handful of people to almost 1500 at the peak of, of the involvement, two hospitals, 30 plus aircraft, helos, all sorts of C-130s and C-17s. CBs, two hospitals, um, Air Force uh, units on the ground supporting the airfield operation. So FARPs, the whole nine yards. So it was no kind, you know, so that was seven months. Um, incredible impact of, of what that led to the story of the book, you know, kind of this. And then um, so no kind D goes unpunished. A couple of years later, I get <laughs> sent back as now you're the senior mill rep in Pakistan as the commander of the office defense representative. So doing all the integration, thought it was a one-year assignment. Three years later, after the bin Laden raid, they said, hey, why don't you come out? And I became the director of strategic operational plans at the National Counterterrorism Center for the for the last three years of my career and retired in 2014. I was lucky enough to have Bill McRaven, dear friend, uh, do my retirement. Did some work, uh, paid back, uh, you know, was helping to, to do uh, joint task force training because I was a CJTF, did Capstone and Keystone which was really, you know, quite humbling. Um, started a leadership uh, company, you know, with a couple of Navy SEALs that did not write books. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, then uh, supported, you know, Liminal Collective Arena, with, which helped with Red Bull and some of the performance there. Uh, CEO of a cybersecurity company that helped pay back from um, doing some offensive cyber, uh, supported some government contracts, and then had this great opportunity about four and a half years ago to join the concentric team and uh, has been just a, an incredible ride. How did you two link up? <laughs> Good story. <It> is. <laughs> uh, I, so, so the guy uh, is uh, the president of concentric, Jeff Baker. He was at an event in Seattle and uh, our CEO uh, had just quit concentric CEO. And, um, and, and anyway, Jeff went to this event where Mike was talking. And I think if I'm correct, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, Mike at the end of it, there's a throwaway comment said, hey, if anyone's got a job in the Pacific Northwest, my <laughs> wife and I love it up here. You know, like, and so Jeff, I was like, follow him, follow him, get his business card. He's like texting me. I was like, hunt him down. So like Jeff followed him on a plane to DC, you know, using his ace, like CIA techniques. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so that was it. So, and then I, I flew to DC and met Mike. I said, Hey, I got this thing, <laughs> you know. It's, it was, I mean, the company was like, you know, half, more than half, less than half the size it is now. So it was. I said, I think there's something good here. You know, we need we need some leadership. So, um, so yeah, and that was it. It's incredible. You guys are uh, you you have a really good relationship, obviously, in between you. But you you run and manage your companies very very well, which I think is uh, one of the 
the highest praises you can get to people and and you can this is completely unsolicited uh feedback from me and i would know most because of course uh my wife works for you guys so if uh you know if it was anything different i I don't know if i'd tell you but you can take that for what it is end game first I think it, it, it's not just the title of this book. It, it's something that you guys have learned and, and picked up and added to your toolkit over time. But what I really want to find out is that when did you when did you realize that first entering a crisis and trying to figure out how to manage and, and position yourself to get out of it? When did you guys learn this trait? Because it's something that not a le- lot of leaders add into their playbook, and especially when you guys know when you're in the thick of something that is going catastrophically wrong around you, if somebody would come out to you and say, okay, so uh, describe to me what the finish line of this is actually going to look like. You're like, man, don't you see like everything is coming in around us right now. I don't have, I I can't think of that right now. So where did you guys pick this up from? I think individually. And then how do you apply that to the company that you guys now lead? Well, I mean, I, my answer is easy because I picked it up from my, <laughs> so, so I, I, you know, I was like, Hey, that's a good idea. Um, Mike, Mike had got, uh, obviously this amazing experience and he'd got lots of this sketched out, uh, either, you know, I think Mike, um, you'd done lectures on humanitarian response and stuff. And so certain chapters in the book, like anatomy of a crisis, um, Mike had got that like in his in his he'd already lectured on that and had got that kind of skeleton of of what you do and I think it's a profound insight honestly because as you say people are so tactical when they're dealing with a crisis they don't think about it's going to end right it's a real it's you have to be quite uh, you know strategic to think that so um, I think Mike had already got it and it, 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 it either lectured on various aspects in the book or um, had got it, you know, kind of in his head. So, so he was just telling me that stuff. And, and that's how I learned. I've learned lots of things from Mike, but that was, that was one of the ones that we wrote a book about. There's other things we could write about. Um, but, um, you know, there's the, that, I think that's where I got it from. Yeah. It, it, as Roderick said, you know, I think it, it was, it was kind of, you know, prescient in that, you know, when, <laughs> General Abizade, Doug Luke came ashore and kind of like, hey, you know, we have a bad habit of sending U.S. troops, but then we can't get out of there. He says, you know, hey, what's your end game and what's your exit strategy? Looked at him like, holy shit, I just got here, you know. And uh, <laughs> but he, but he said, okay, here are your two, you know. He gave me strategic guidance that you know you love from a boss, and that is, hey, um, you know, provide humanitarian relief and improve U.S.-Pakistan relationships, and they saw it as a strategic uh, effect. And so that was such clarity as we got through some of the initial stages, the 911 that the that the military can can do so well. Uh, and then this idea, the second and third order effects of, boy, if you don't get the sanitation right, or you don't get the water right, or if you don't contain, that's another chaos ensuing all in itself. And then when it kind of gets steady state, you can really focus and kind of go, Hey, everything I do is going to be centered around achieving those goals. And in fact, everything up through that phase is, you know, how do you continually set that up? But how do you figure out is how do you leave in a process? And and that's the genesis of the book. And the big theme is you get to, you know, all these crises end, you know, this isn't going to go on forever. How's it going to end? But the idea, I think the real powerful is you get to influence how that's going to end. And you get to decide that. And that's where the brilliance of, you know, Roderick came in when we were going through COVID with the company and and what we decided, how we wanted to exit, knowing that COVID was going to end sometime. 
and how did we want the company to position and shape for when we exit? One of the things I find so interesting about it, I mean, just, you know, the anatomy of a crisis, which is, you know, a chapter in the book, uh, and this was the skeleton, like, you know, I clearly articulated. And he had this piece, and, and I think one of the things that was hardest in COVID, actually, was this steady state period. It's like, so you've got the... You know, we all instinctively understand 911 moment, the crisis response, the, the bit before the crisis, then, you know, there's all this emergency stuff happened. But I think, you know, in COVID, there was just this, and, and in any crisis, and, and Mike articulated this so well, this is this steady state moment where you just, you're in a crisis, you're just dealing with it. It's the crisis isn't over, but it's like, that's when things start to get very wearing and, and people start to actually break down or, you know, so that's why we have chapters in the book about mental health, um, you know, we have uh, chapters there about relationships and thinking about the crisis balance sheet, you know, because in that steady state moment, you are incurring favors, debts, things like that, because the crisis hasn't ended, but you're just dealing with it. And I thought that was really profound. You know, I think most people instinctively understand the sort of like dialing non one one bit in the end, but like just these pieces in between, I thought was were really, really important to think about. And, and that was like a massive insight I got from Mike about just like, okay, we're in this middle bit now. And it's like, yeah, I thought, a profound point and um you know uh, one that i learned a lot from anyway not only the the steady state of it like you're discussing there but i think being able to to transition out of that into what the the new normalcy is and i know you guys have a a section in here called reestablishing normalcy knowing that normal is no longer normal it's definitely not what it was going to be prior to it's not what you just came out of but you're you're setting the framework for what you want this to look like in the future, and that that takes extreme, you know, thought in how do you phase this out. Not only you know company wise, how how you're you know managing your relationships with partners, with clients, um, to employees, and everything else, the health and safety and welfare of everybody, and how you get through all that. I want you guys to touch on that, I think, together, because I know I know you guys both had a, a phased plan on how you wanted the new normal to look. And I'm sure the new normal is not what Concentric prior to COVID looked like at all. Nothing near. Um, I, and I think... I think why we did so well coming out of the pandemic was because we embraced that idea that it's there is a new normal. A crisis does shift things, whether they be tectonic plates or otherwise. You are just the society is not going to look the same afterwards. And I think we embraced that. We didn't expect to go back to normal. We knew there would be a new normal. I think that, and so I'll, I'll give you a very clear example of that. I mean, I'm sure, I, I know there are others. Um, but obviously, remote working uh, is is a is a fundamental shift in society, and I think we were very early to embrace it. Um, but we did something very significant. We said we'll always embrace it. We didn't say this is temporary, and that allowed our employees to make um, choices in their lives which which were more beneficial for them you know they could they could move to places uh knowing that their job was safe they weren't going to have to move back to a sort of metropolitan area or back to you know other places where we need them to work and i think that was just a profound understanding from us that yeah the the world shifted there's not going to be how do we how do we take advantage of that to you know keep our, our talent um happy and also productive and i think that was that was a profound um sort of moment around the and that was that was what that new normal thing and i think when you're looking at uh, crises uh generally i think you know um 
we're obviously living through one today with the Israel situation. It's not going to go back to how it was, you know, a week ago, right? <laughs> the Middle East is going to be reformed by this, and and so yeah, so so whatever that is, there's going to be a new a new normal situation there that people will need to adapt to and accept straight away. And, and I think that the counter side to that is people that fight to go back to, you know, 2019 as it were, like pre-COVID, and as as we're talking about that crisis, they don't do so well because <laughs> it's yeah. gone. Yeah, for you just sure. don't get back. You know, Mike, I know uh, we have very uh, similar backgrounds. You were obviously uh, a lot better at your job than I was and did it for a heck of a lot longer. Uh, But the thought the thought of having remote work, it it truly feels like uh, it's it's just a temporary solution to bridge the gap until normalcy returns. And that's not at all the mindset that you guys believe in. And when I used to think of remote work, I, I, of course, think of of movies and YouTube videos that I've seen. And I'm like, Oh yeah. You know, guys at Google get in their sleeping pods and they can dial in from their house and kind of do whatever they want. How are they getting any work done? Because everybody's got to be on the same floor, getting around the same table, you know, whiteboard and everything out. That takes a big time shift in your thinking. You know how I know that was a decision that you guys came to early and you made a decision and a commitment to stick to it, but it couldn't. Uh, I mean, it had to be new to you guys. So how did you embrace that? Yeah, Cody, I think I think you, you hit it on the head is kind of our background. And so, you know, the idea maybe of dispersed forces, how we were operating, you know, so I started becoming familiar with with that. And then when, I, you know, leading counterterrorism operations worldwide, you know, the idea, you know, what we did at JSOC with that, you know, worldwide phone call and, you know, hundreds of outstations and people and, and, you know, that was still able to communicate. How do you communicate, which is an important chapter in the book that, that Roderick and I mapped out. How do we do that? You know, the trust, the relationships, the how do you still represent that in person and how do you get things done? But I think, you know, part of that experience that we all, that you and I had, had been a part of that long that, hey, we managed to do worldwide operations worldwide with, you know, forces in every time zones and go, hey, I I think we can make this work. You know, you just have to have key ingredients for that connection, that relationship, the communications, the workflow, um, the trust, and to be able to give, you know, also the culture of the workforce to be able to, you know, give them that guidance and, and have them execute. And then, the, you know, the ability that you then had this incredible talent pool worldwide that you could rely on to be able to execute, you know, what you were trying to do. And and that gave us great confidence that, that we could do it in, uh, in orchestrating that. Yeah, I think uh, it's spoken like a, a very good general officer, because <laughs> I can tell you that at the end of all of those VTCs you sat in, there is some a low-level NCO that's chasing a, a squad of privates, of airmen, of sailors, you name it around because they're getting into trouble somewhere. <laughs> now, I think that goes, again, back to trust. And trust is such a big thing within a company, but also you guys, your, your ability to uh, successfully you know, assess and get great candidates to apply uh, to the organization and knowing that at the end of the day, like you, they will have the company's trust and, and it, you know, it goes, it, that's a, a, a difficult thing to put on not only senior leaders, but, you know, mid-level, mid-level leaders and then first line leaders as well. 
because it, it takes a lot. You're, you're at times you're truly trying to figure out, uh, you know, not only are they getting their work done, but there's a lot of inner personal things that you miss out on from not being an integral, like embedded part of a team. So I think, you know, how are you guys getting through that now? Uh, staying remote and making sure that they know that, you know, we are, we, you know, we're one big family as, you know, people say that a lot, but it truly does feel like that. Yeah, no, I, I think you, that that's a really hard point. And, and um, I think we, we're very careful to think about that. Um, remote work isn't for everyone. I think uh, concentric gives you a lot of trust uh, but we also sometimes ask a lot you know we're, we're an active security company if we have to go and do stuff on a weekend or out of hours you know we have people that sort of drop what they're doing stop answering back so it's like so we give you a lot of trust but but in return you know we we ask you to act sometimes and act independently you know there's not like a user manual for how to do a lot of the things we do right um so i actually don't think that's always an ideal environment for younger people um i've got some nephews who are you know going into the workforce and their their initial jobs are, are remote work and i think that's a terrible idea um I think you do need in your 20s mentorship, on-site guidance, all of those kinds of things. We think about that. Obviously, in our site uh, in Seattle, we can do more of that. I think it's a lot harder for us to do remotely. You just miss some of those things. So I think when we're recruiting into our corporate team, we think about that. We want people that have had experience, have have the training already. They've been mentors. They can be mentors. So it's a it's a complicated picture. We, we don't think in any way, this we're the finished article in remote work. We think there's more we can do. We've actually just had a working group on that. How do we maintain those connections in virtual worlds? How do we do that? Um, we're always seeking new answers to that. Um, we get we try and get the teams together as much as we can. Um, and I think again, one of the things we learned through the through the pandemic, which is still true today, and uh, Mike mentioned it earlier, is just communicating on multiple platforms: an email, Slack, text, phone call video. Mike is exceptional at this stuff. He's the ideal leader for, for remote world because he just builds that culture and, and is very uh, good about setting those check-in points and all of that stuff. And and I think that's the reality of being a CEO now in, in a virtual, you know, in a remote work. You have to do that. If you want the benefits from that, the leader of the company and the leadership of the company also on their side have to commit to them making the time to check in. And so it's more work in some ways, uh, but I think, you know, you get the benefits the other side. So it's a, it's a complex picture. And I think you know, different companies are doing it differently and, and we continue to try and adapt and, and think about how we do it. Uh, it yeah, work in progress and hopefully it's what goes well so far. You know? Cody, as you know, you know, it's that, that empowerment, but, you know, that kind of relationship, as Roderick said, you know, we also make it a point. We bring all our corporate together twice a year, you know, almost like that commander's conference, you know, come back yeah. to the headquarters. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the old adage that, you know, <laughs> you probably embraced, you know, because I learned it from a from a great NCO that led me. He goes, sir, that's how you lead, you know, take care of your troops. And <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, you take care of them and everything else takes care of itself. And so it's been uh, it's been great. And then the culture of the company, you know, the the folks that we look at, it, it's just so proud because, it, you know, a little bit of it has that almost mission focus rather than a work focus. So, you know, those odd hours that, oh, hey, somebody just called and, you know, needs help getting out of some place or needs protection or needs this intelligence product or fill in the blanks and, and people respond. And it's just so great to have that 
kind of mentality and structure in the workforce. Yeah, it's a fascinating industry, something that I never thought really was a thing, I guess. Prior to, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, outside of, you know, government officials who have assigned either Secret Service or some other form of detail, I never even thought of, you know, high net worth individuals or, or people like that who are doing such, you know, traveling all over the world doing whatever it's, you know, normal business operations or philanthropic stuff like that, that they would ever need to be this sort of detail. And then you like take a second and think of it and you're like, well, of course, like, why would they not? Like that's why, you know, that's like the, one of the the silliest things ever to not think that people uh, would need protection. And I think when you look at the overall like protection industry and in space and the more that you you find out about it about it and you know me i start i got a crazy mind so once i start you know looking at something i constantly am going deeper and deeper and deeper and trying to find out more and more and more about it you don't realize how big of an industry that it actually is how how much of the globe it, it truly covers but also the really interesting opportunities that present you know companies like concentric and i you know, one of the things, and, and we're going to get, and I'm going to ask you guys about current situation that's going on right now. But first, I wanted to highlight, you know, we talk about Ukraine and, you know, Russia invading Ukraine in that crisis and you guys being not only so quick to react and respond to that for clients, but also taking, a, you know, a conflict, seeing that to a lot of people, they couldn't see any sort of good end state of what what the future of this could potentially look like but identifying you know vulnerable people in the middle and acting and doing something to better their current situation yeah i, I you know i think i mean it's a it's actually a um, a very loaded topic around some of these humanitarian rescues we do um we obviously did a big one in Afghanistan, which it's, it's got the ball rolling. And then in, in Ukraine, uh, Jeff, who's president, um, went out to Poland and I think with a buddy of his from the agency, essentially borrowed a board, a white van and drove to Kiev <laughs> just because they were having a midlife crisis and, uh, and then got there. But, you know, on the ground and, and I think, but, you know, also joking aside, what happens next is really interesting. There's, like you were talking about the security industry. I mean, the security industry, the domestic United States security industry is worth $26 billion. It's a big industry, lots of big players in it. And there's lots of people saying they could do lots of things. And, um, you know, they've got networks and can do this, that, and the other. And and and, and to tie, you know, your sort of question back to the book a little bit, what, what we try and point out in the book is that a crisis flips everything on its head, right? So why we have a chapter in there about intelligence and refit and all those kinds of things is because actually what you thought you knew, what your network was in Kiev, you know, prior to the war is not going to be the same the minute that crisis starts, right? Because so so some of those people are reservists, they get called up into the army, they're not going to be able to drive your Toyota, you know, four by four to do a rescue, right? It just completely flips it. So um, that model of response, you know, putting assets on the ground, people on the ground immediately to secure resources, I think is a much more fluid and adaptive way to approach some of these these things. Obviously, you can't do that in all cases. But, um, you know, we, we were sort of very interested in that. Um, and, and what happened in, in Ukraine was we 
we were able to do some humanitarian rescue. We we proved that we were able to do that in Afghanistan. And then it's a case of can you line essentially three things up together? Capability, you need to be able to do the rescue itself. You need to be able to move people. You need some money because <laughs> there's a chain of people to do that, you know. Um, and then you need like you know essentially where some they need to be able to go somewhere. You know, so, so you know, I've had visas or in the case of Ukraine, it was easy because uh, the European Union gave people uh, exit passes into, into you know, into the EU. Was, that was incredibly difficult in Afghanistan. We had the money and the assets, but we didn't have the exit visas. Uh, and I would say, you know, for the situation right now in Israel, that's going to be very difficult as well. Where does everyone go? You know, I mean, it's just like you, you could sort of, you know, that, that that is something that people forget when they're trying to think about the logistics of these things. So, um you know, I, the humanitarian side of the work we do is, is is really interesting. It continues to be, you know, we have a foundation called 188 Foundation on the side of the company that um, we look for opportunities to be useful in. But that also gives us a chance to network with other people in similar spaces. Um, we're involved with Hostage USA, which I think is going to be relevant um, here soon. Um, so all things like that. So it's just, you know, we, we keep, our, keep our network, you know, in that space as well as commercially. Yeah, and the fun thing the fun thing about it is because uh, you know uh, Roderick, you know, is the executive chairman and owner of the company. It, it allows us to, to live our values, and so what's kind of fun is all the proceeds from the book also go to the One Eighty Eight Foundation to be able to support that. So it is kind of neat. It's it's fun to be a part of that. I think it's a there's a big difference in knowing that you have these connections within your organization and trusting the personnel that have those connections in your organization to actually, you know, be able to let them action them. And I know that, you know, if we wanted to talk about Afghanistan where, uh, you know, this really happened, you know, was that a, was that a difficult decision or at the time was that a no brainer of, we see people in need. Uh, this obviously is tied to the U S withdrawal from that country from that, that came very drastically in the country completely collapsed a lot faster and, anybody expected or any assessment told us that it was going to happen but having the trust in those personnel through those connections was that a struggle at all or was it did it did it come very easy to be clear i mean our operation in afghanistan i mean we risked the company on that i mean if that goes wrong that's huge you, you, you destroyed reputationally and financially so real quick so, Roderick, i mean <laughs> you saying that that is a huge decision what right, but, what got you to that decision? Well, I, I just if you have you know American heroes like Mike Lafever working for you and uh, other incredible people that we have working for us with these amazing backgrounds, you better do something useful with that. Uh, otherwise, what you know, why bother, right? And I think that was my view. It's like, what, why, why do all this? You know, okay, it's great, we make some money and keep everyone. Uh, keep everyone well paid but you know if you've got this amazing uh, capability I don't you know once you once you leave the careers in the military I, I sh that shouldn't be the end I, I didn't ever want it to be the end of my ability to add value or, or save people's lives so um, so it was so the decision was n no seconds you know of course we were going to go do it I think um, what happens next is then just this crazy <laughs> story of actually then having to go do it um, 
and then I just remember, you know, obviously the team had worked overnight for like a week to move people through safe houses and rescue them. And, you know, I'd worked my side of it, which was raising the money with donors who were going to join us in this risky endeavor, getting the planes and all the rest of it. And then there's just this moment. And I remember talking to Mike really clearly. I was sitting in my backyard here, just like, oh man. And of course the plane's on the tarmac, fully loaded and it's not going anywhere. Right. And I'm just like, oh shit. You know, we got so far, right? We're like, you know, and then of course I woke up the next morning and saw the text wheels up, you know, and I was like, oh, we did it, you know. And then, and then what happened next was super interesting because, and I think this is where the experience comes in, having seen how you know governments react, um, not just the US, to to private enterprise sometimes in this space. We knew that there would be a backlash to to our efforts there, and there was a significant backlash from the State Department against our efforts. So we knew that we needed to have our story put out there uh, quickly. So so we did do that unusually, but. Um, and of course, you know, they're pointing at the risks that we already knew, you know, there could have been a terrorist on the plane, could have blown up, you know, all these things, you know, and, and of course, of course, we wouldn't have done it in normal circumstances because we, you know, I've been doing that my entire life, you know, <laughs> so is Mike, it's like we understood that, but it's like the people on that plane were, were being hunted by the Taliban and still to this day, their families have been visited by the Taliban because they were interpreters or prominent in female education, prominent female educators and teachers themselves. We knew that they, they all understood the risk, you know, um, so I, I was, you know, but again, our experience taught us that, you know, we, we need to be able to just communicate really well across multiple channels about what this what our story is before somebody else writes this story for us so um so it was a whole process but yeah it was, it was not without risk and the same in ukraine you know i mean that, that can go wrong you know you have teams on the ground there and the russians are dropping bombs but you, you go do it when you can you know it's not always you can go do it i think you know that, that's that's the nuance you have to just make sure that we're not creating a problem we're actually adding some value you have to be careful of that are those discussions that are going on right now i think if you talk about israel right now it's it's i mean you you there's a really different situation than we faced in afghanistan and ukraine both of those places were very fluid um, so, you know, our plane left Afghanistan, I think an hour before the last, uh, American soldier left Afghanistan. And I said to Mike, you know, we, we should only be doing this while the Americans are still there because after that, they're, they're out, the, the, our room, our operating space is, is gone. You know, I, I, it, you know, um, Ukraine, same thing, incredibly fluid, you know, just, just, so you can operate in these fluid spaces, you know, you can do things and move around. I mean, in Israel right now, the IDF has that country locked down, you know, yeah. <laughs> you operate as a private entity, you really, I don't, you know, it's the people are doing some things right now, but I mean, the, the, the government of Israel has control of that country and there is no, there's, you know, there's very little room for maneuver, to maneuver. I think it'd be very unwise to get involved in, in that. I mean, there's, you can help within Israel, I think, but like to try and maneuver around Gaza or maybe the West Bank, I think would be very challenging and, and would probably create more of a problem than it's solved right now. Um, then, you know, so, so, so I would say right now, the capability for humanitarian rescue or engagement is, is really low right now. I don't, that might change. Things change. Yeah. Things get Things fluid. Things take Corridors time open. too. Yeah. Um, and also there's this capability. You know, the thing I mentioned earlier, I mean, security contractors and folks we would lean on normally have been called up into the military or otherwise, you know, engaged. And we've worked with both Palestinian and Israeli security contractors over the years. But, you know, they're, they're going to be they're going to be 
either engaged on one side or the other right now. So, so which is you know, it's a shame that they we've worked with both sides and, and together in the past, and uh, so it's sad to see. But yeah, I mean, I think our room for maneuver is is really limited. Right? I, I don't know what you think, Mike. But, yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, the other I think key point, Roderick, that you highlighted, you know, and kind of both the Afghan and Ukraine. It's interesting. A security company, a private entity, in a, in a philanthropic way has much more room of maneuver than than large governments. And so what we found that we were able to, you know, be able to execute and conduct things that, that uh, you know, the bigger apparatus bogged down in bureaucracy or whatever just didn't have the adaptability and agility that we were able to demonstrate and to be able to pull off. And that, I think, was, was one of the key things in looking at that as, boy, is there something there that, you know, kind of people could get a, their heads around. Yeah, I used to joke around all the time because everybody thinks that the world is black and white. And there are a lot of, uh, you know, black and white situations that are out there. I would say that just how we were discussing Israel, Palestine right now is a very black and white situation. I used to work in the gray and gray has a lot of different colors from from super, super light, almost white, all the way to as dark as it can possibly be. And I love being in the gray and your guys' ability to maneuver in the gray to get things done. Uh, I think is truly amazing. But Mike, I think, uh, you know, Roger touched on it. He said, I knew I was risking my company. Uh, and by doing so, he's he's also by going about and knowing that, yes, I'm going to risk my company to go save these people who I, in my heart of hearts, truly believe uh, need to be rescued and given a chance at a better life. I'm trusting my people in the relationship that they have. Roderick also turned around and discussed about raising capital, the funds needed to do this. So he's not only risking uh, the business, he's risking his namesake, all, all those blue chips that he's raised over time. And you walk in the next morning and turn the lights on at the office and, and it looks like a probably like an operation center now, something that you're from very familiar with working in. And you just hit the ground running. What was that feeling like? Uh, it was it was pretty uh, humbling. We had a, a great team and it was kind of interesting how Roderick and I kind of task organized. We had, you know, Jeff Baker, our president, they were great contacts. Uh, we had former folks that operated in the worlds that you and I did that were kind of kind of running it and manipulating it. And um, and so it was just this uh, what support can we have to be able to call in the the chips and the coordination that was required and when you read, you know, kind of some of these texts from these people that were, you know, trusting. And, and as you can imagine, at that point, when people heard that there might have been a, in a potential, the numbers of folks that, you know, from our networks that that uh, jumped in and says, hey, can you help here and there? It was, you know, it's just a, a very emotional, very powerful to be able to, as you know, the then that was part of the earthquake as well, to be able to, you know, be a portion to be able to save lives, uh, you know, is so professionally and personally rewarding. And so, um, yeah, the amount of how we organize and how folks were working literally around the clock and in the different time zones, as you remember, to be able to make it happen. And uh, as a Roderick articulated, I mean, it was a roller coaster, you know, we were on, we were off, we had to negotiate with the Taliban and, you know, it was uh, country fatigue because we had countries cleared that we could take people to because all they had was the Afghan cards that now all of a sudden is like, oh, we're, t- we're tired of this, you know, we're, we're out and then coordinate with the IRC to be able to load them into Mexico. 
and then, and then a little nuanced twist at the end, the, the KEM airline that we leased, uh, we thought we had two, we had to go to one, but then at the end, the guy realized what was happening. And so we had convinced everybody, Hey, this is going to be 188 people on the airplane. And it arrived with like, I don't know, 370 or something like that. And he stuffed that bad boy. And so, so needless to say, there was a couple other folks that were not happy with the event. The <laughs> sure. that Diplomatic incident, I think, was the phrase. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of it, you know, so much pride and so much joy and just to, to pull it off and to have the confidence and, and the incredible. Yeah, that's probably a book in itself. <laughs> it a hundred percent is absolutely. Uh, all of this uh, again, you guys do it such a great job of laying everything out in the book. Um, but Roger, I think it's you know you you founded a business, and this is not your your first business. Um, and it's it's crazy because you you obviously you found it and you fully trust the, the ceo that you put in there being mike um but the ability to to know that there's so much blood sweat and tears that goes into this there's people's livelihoods tied to it it's your future your kids's future everything else like that and the the decision to just say you know yep this is what's this is what needs to be done is not a light thing by any means and it has to come from somewhere within you uh, because most people, again, we talked about, you know, you running a business and what is a business? Is it just there to make money or is it to, to, you know, change people's lives? And it's something that, you know, you're doing. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, um, I mean, I think, <laughs> um, prior to spending, you know, uh, a good amount of time in therapy, most of my, most of my, uh, things I did in life were because to show people. Oh, you know, you said I couldn't do it. All right. <laughs> you know, and my wife says to me, she knows that look when I'm just like, somebody tells me, like, oh, okay, all right. You just told him you couldn't do it. I guess we're going to be going to do that. Right? You know? So a lot of my motivation for, and when I look at it is around that, right? It's like, you, you can't, you can't go to Cambridge University. Really? No, I think I can. I think I can you know? So, so, so I, I sort of generally, I don't, I don't act like that anymore, by the way, I'm much more rational, but, um, I'd had this experience in uh, 2010, 2012, with uh, that period of time, a very large philanthropic organization. And it was my first really experience with the, the development world and, and how development works and stuff. And um, and I was, I was trying to do a similar thing. There were some people being killed as part of, uh, in, a, in, in another country, as, as part of this push to, to do this philanthropic um, effort that this uh, big uh, entity was doing. And I really wanted to stop that. I thought, you know, we've got capability here. I know people from the CIA and MIA, you know, there's people that know how to do this. And this, this development agency or the institution is just pushing ahead with this. And, and, and people are getting killed because, you know, they're, they're, they're exposing them to risk in dangerous places. And um, anyway, just went went to lots of meetings and talked to lots of people from you know on, on behalf of, of them and um, yeah and they and they and in the end they just they shut the program down. They were like, no, it's general instability. We we don't want to get involved in this. And and uh, the guy that became the CEO of Concentric uh, later on before Mike, he he rang me up and. And uh, he, said, he said something very profound, and I was raging on the phone. I was just like, "This is just evil." I've never, seen, you know, I've met terrorists, and these people are more evil than that. You know, they're just kind of like they know what's happening, and they're still like. And and he just said to me at the end, he said, "You will have your chance to do this yourself. You know, you will be, you'll go back to this." And I just, and I, I remembered it, and so 
you know, you can either complain about stuff or you can just go do it yourself, you know? And so I think that was very much in my mind when, when these things happen, it's like, yeah, I can complain and, or we can just go do it ourselves. We can, we can raise money. We can, we know these people, we can put a plan together or, or just shut up complaining, you know? So it was, I think there was some of that in it. You know, I, I thought if you have the capability, you should, you should act. And because what, you, you know, if we all did that, we'd live in a better world, right? But, you know, we actually have the opportunity. And we try and do that across the board. We're not always successful, but the company has a green initiative. Uh, we have diversity initiatives. We don't, And what I say uh, and what Mike and I push out to the teams as much as we can, is like we don't like to just... Um, publish things and we like to do things we're a very action-oriented agency you know very action action-oriented company so i really like to fund things that are doing things uh you know actually where we can see impact that's really hard to do um uh, but we, we try uh, to take that lesson into those spaces as well it isn't always successful but um i think that's the ethos we try and push mike i, I would say probably to add on to that is that uh you know, definitely your experience, my experience, and, and I'm sure that a lot of the security industry is is like this as well. But, you know, I think we, we sit here from a, a position of, you know, I, I, I don't know. I feel very good sitting where I'm at, but I also understand that I'm very, very lucky to be sitting in the position that I am today with the upbringing that I was afforded. And from the military, my experiences was is that there was diversity, but there wasn't crazy, crazy diversity. And a lot of things, a lot of things like that is just based off of opportunity, but it's not opportunity of just giving somebody its job. It's opportunity via education and upbringing and everything else like that. And I think that's another one of those things that you guys are, are proving that like, yeah, you know, not everyone here just has to be a white dude. You know, there is, there are experts that are out there. There are people who are interested in this field that, absolutely deserve every opportunity possible to come in to learn to train and to be the next leaders of, of whatever it is whether that's security governmental anything else like that it's spot on and that's what's so much fun about it uh having a private company and being able to like i said earlier is to live our values to be able to do that that was one of the first conversations you know i first met roderick <laughs> you know it's kind of like it's kind of like hey you know was was jeff right about saying that this guy really really can do something but in the discussion you know that, after you got chased down across country <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh you know afterwards it wasn't the, it was the very first discussion it was in the first discussion is hey this is um we have a chance to influence and to and to live this and to and to make a difference. And so that was so profound on me is kind of this this idea that in the first discussion, it wasn't about, you know, money, although, you know, you, you're in a business to make money, but it was also about bigger than that. It was just bigger than. And so that's what just so attracted me to the kind of the ability. And I think that's what we instill in our folks as well as, yeah, we're a security company, but we also you know, this opportunity, the 188, the diversity, the green, uh, to be involved and to make a difference. And it makes so much impact. I think, I think you know, the uh, diversity discussion is really hard. And, and I think, you know, it's one thing Mike and I, you know, you know, we, it's just hard and we, we're not, we're not, 
we're not where we want to be with it in any way. And we just, we, we sort of run out of ideas and then we come back to it. And, um, you know, it's one of the things we, we try and think about it holistically as well. There's some things we can do programmatically in the company. And I feel like every company does that now. So we always wanted to be one step ahead of that, but we're still, you know, it's still thinking about it. But there's another thing we can do, which is like when, when we can, we'll pick up a phone and, and make phone calls on behalf of people that we want to support. And, um, you know, essentially I'm trying to think of the right phrase, but like use our office or power or, you know, whatever it is we have uh, just to kind of stand up, uh, alongside people that are doing difficult things. Like, so the courage we had potentially to go and do Afghanistan things. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. But like, it's just as hard to stand next to someone in the United States who's, who's trying to, um, you know, maybe get somebody elected to office, uh, someone of color elected. It's like, okay, that's, that's hard as well, you know? So, so we, we want to try and use that. It's not, it's not, it's not programmatic. It's not obvious always what we what what to do, but um, and and any of them also. It's you know you get buffeted so much by society on these things. We live in very politically divisive times, so that's where you have to you know set these kind of strong cultural notes um, and and stick to them. It's it's it's. I think it's harder and harder because um, as society has become more complex and divisive and. Uh, in America, then that gets reflected into the company, you know, and, uh, and and you have to kind of all work together and 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 it continue to be a safe space for for people of every political leaning to to be in the company, you know. So it's um it's it's I think it's it's become a lot harder. It's a lot harder to be CEO of an American company than it was uh, ten years ago. Yeah, I don't think Mike. I'm sure you're not going to disagree with that. No. <laughs> Yeah, it, it was interesting. You know, in my background, I was uh, the plans of personnel for chief of naval personnel. I was his deputy and did all the plans of personnel for 400,000 in the Navy and, you know, just kind of tackling some of the issues from from diversity to gender to to race to women on submarines, women in combat. I mean, it was just it was kind of neat. And so it was, hey, why not? Got to go after it. This is how you tackle it. This is how you change things. And you know, it again, kind of almost back to the book, the end game first, you know, if we want diversity, here's what we have to do to be able to make it, you know, and here are the, here are some of the steps we have to do to be able to make a change in an industry that is, you know, we all know is kind of in a kind of an old white guy, uh, business of security. So it's, it's really kind of neat to be able to move the needle on it. You guys seeing a change? I don't know. It's, 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 it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, so I would tell you one of the tough things for us. And, um, and so, so I feel like we go kind of like, you know, we sort of accelerate up, then we plateau a little bit and then we'll probably accelerate up a little bit. I mean, one of the things that's obviously concentric once, uh, is, is expertise, right? <laughs> so, so we're going to rely on, uh, so we're going to want to hire out of federal agencies, the military and stuff like that. So we are somewhat, um, uh, you know, if constrained by that to some degree, you know, it's like our clients want like expertise. They want people that have been in the room that have seen stuff at uh, a, a macro level and, and just know how, how to, how to do all of these things. Right. The only place you're going to really get that kind of exposure and training is in the military or federal agencies. Uh, and, and, you know, so, so obviously some local state agencies and, and stuff like that as well. But, but that is, I mean, that's what our clients want. That's what we get paid for. That's so, so that's what I have to deliver. So that, necessarily constrains our you know the pool of people that we're, we're, we recruit from so so we're a little hamstrung by that not always 
Um, we're, we're driven by what clients want as well. Um, so for example, if clients have specific education requirements, obviously that changes, changes, uh, our, our pool in some ways, you know, we've, we've started having conversations around that and we've introduced our own training. We're starting to introduce our, our own training programs. Obviously, uh, we felt that, I mean, that's, that's where this gets interesting, right? It's like, you basically say, um, Training is obviously useful for us commercially, but it's also, it has wider implications than that because we can then train people with recognized certifications to then apply for jobs either with us or, or with other companies that, that can change their lives. And essentially you can widen the pool of candidates if you have your own training pool and you're not relying everyone to get a Harvard, you know? So, so I think some of that is, is, is ongoing work. Um, but I think, as I said, we, we accelerate up plateau and then we, ex- yeah, we, we're, we're sort of a little like that right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I very much still work in progress. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine, but it, it is good to, good to hear. Nice to hear that, you know, you guys are thinking about the end game and you're saying, Hey, this is what we want. You know, our company, we think that this, uh, division or, 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 you know, service can look like, why not put the steps in, in place now and try to figure out a way to get to that solution End game mm-hmm. first, uh, with everything going on right now, do you think Hamas thought at all about their end game? Hmm. Yes. Really? You think so? hundred percent, hundred percent. I was saying to Mike yesterday, um, we were talking about it and I was, you know, I think, you know, it's clear, you know, you'd launch, um, suicide, I mean, um, I'm trying to think of the right word, brutal, brutalized attacks into, into Israel, you know, like hyper violent, uh, attacks, um, against non-military targets. I, it, it's designed to provoke a reaction. It's not designed for anything else. Right. So it's designed to provoke a reaction. And so, um, I think, Hamas's end game is really clear. It wants to break the Abraham Accords where between Israel and the Gulf States, and it wants to make sure Israel is not allied or normalized with Saudi in the next generation. And I think if, as I suspect they're going to, the Israelis invade Gaza, uh, and, 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 and that will, uh, Mike's better at explain, you know, he's, he's got more knowledge on sort of insurgency of, of that kind than I have. I mean, you, you, you're looking at, lots of you know in the thousands of civilian casualties i think i mean you you both know that better than i do i i've done that kind of work and i think you, you know that makes you know the arab uh population around the world that uh, i don't think uh i don't think saudi's going to be allying with uh israel or normalizing with israel anytime soon so so i think yeah i think this is the last roll of the dice of hamas and the palace you know if, if they hadn't have done this i think they were looking at they were terrified of, of, of that, you know, Israel being able to normalize with its, its Arab neighbors. And I think this is, um, I think they have thought clearly about it. I think that the, the question is, what is Israel's end game? <laughs> because they don't seem to be thinking about their end game. Um, I think that's, I think Hamas have got it clearly thought out. I, I worry, uh, frankly, that Israel haven't. Uh, I don't know what you think, Mike, but we're discussing, we're, we're constantly discussing this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you nailed it, Roderick. Yeah. And I'm not sure they, they've thought through it because I mean, think of it, you know, just what's happening right now with kind of this, you know, isolating, no water, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, the humanitarian right. crisis, you know, so it no longer becomes um, action against the terrorist group Hamas. It 
looks like you're, you know, damaging, you're doing a collective punishment across the board to all Palestinians or all occupants in this Gaza Strip. And so, yeah, it's, uh, that is a tough one. And Cody, you and I both know, you know, could you imagine, you know, I mean, this was the three block war, urban warfare that's worse. I mean, in, in that society without people in uniforms and blending in and tunnels and not only building the building block the block, but room the room and trying to figure out who's who and, and who's, you know, fleeing uh, the border. If they do open up access to allow some of the non-combatants mm-hmm. to leave, how do you, how do you filter? I mean, this is, mm-hmm. this is an incredible, uh, uh, you know, effort to figure out how to do that. I, I have a question. Sorry, Cody, to hijack your podcast, but <laughs> I, I have a question for Mike. I I seem to remember. Wasn't there some uh, plan or um, you know idea of using troops from the UAE or soldiers from the UAE in Pakistan or you know sort of uh, co-religion? Was this, was that around or am I just misremembering that? Because uh, I'm just thinking about if if that could be a parallel here. I know probably not, but I'm yeah. just you know because. Was that a thing? Yeah, there was. You know, they try to do uh, diffuse the Sunni Shia uh, kind of conflict. Right. Yeah, what's interesting about this one is it it seems as it there isn't a there isn't a clear Sunni Shia divide here on this one with some of the terrorist groups. It's mm-hmm. Kind of interesting. Uh, and then it kind of leads you to you know, are we going? Is this another blue helmet situation where the UN peacekeeping force? Is there anything that can can do that? And and will they be able to eliminate the rocket attacks that, you know, the spurious rocket attacks? But the last attack was quite huge to overwhelm the Iron Dome and and take out so many uh, both civilians and in a horrific uh, attack. Well, it's one of the scariest things to see the Middle East this unstable as it is right now. And the only thing that I think that could have ever gotten this is this exact situation that we're talking about. And that's Hamas attacking Israel. And, you know, we talked a little bit about it beforehand and you have to be very careful and specific about how you discuss things and how you say things, because you understand that is, it's a very sensitive issue. And and it's not just sensitive because of now and the time that we live in, but going back you know, generations on generations on generations. Uh, the, what I find the most interesting about this, though, and, and thinking about Hamas, which I, I will say this is that truly is a terrorist organization. Like they don't, have, their own goal, their goal is to destroy Israel and, and to, you know, try to kill as many Jews as possible. But being a primarily Sunni organization that has the backing of, you know, the largest backing of primary Shia both state via Iran and also, you know, non-state actors with Hezbollah support and everything else like that, it puts the rest of these countries in such a a difficult position. We talked about Saudi Arabia. They've been going through, you know, discussions and negotiations and improving relationships with Israel for a long, long time. Um, You know, they can't come out and say they support Israel. They can't really come out and say they support you know, 100% stand behind, uh, they can say Palestine, they can't say Hamas, because then there's, you know, they're siding with Iran and Hezbollah and everything else like that. Today, you wake up, you see Hezbollah firing rockets from Lebanon down into northern Israel. Of course, you have Jordan sitting there who, you know, I I, I love my guy, King Abdullah, but at some point in time, you got to make a decision on what you're going to do. 
same uh, President Sisi on the other side of the Gaza Strip, like something, you know, at some point in time, this pressure keg, which I know has been going on for a long, long time, has to be released so you at least get some innocence out of there um, because there is going to be a massive amount uh, of death that happens. Watching these, the initial strikes in Gaza is, you know, my last five years, I was primarily focused on, you know, the ISIS situation. So I did the clearance, the original clearance of Kobani in northern Syria. And then we did Mambij across the Euphrates. And then we went down to Raqqa and continued down the Euphrates River Valley. And, you know, I took part in not only, you know, the pre-assault clearance and, and trying to get as much civilian life out of these, you know, 10, 20 story buildings and in, in these major city centers as possible. But then, you know, to sit there and, you know, do bomb, you know, bomb the crap out of them for, you know, a good 48 hours and then go through and do the post bass clearance. It was an absolute mess. And I could not imagine that in as tight of an area that the Gaza Strip is with that many people that are in there. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's 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 just sad. And, you, you, you know, at the end of the day, you think of like, you know, I told you guys jokingly on this podcast, that, you know, I, I somehow stumble into being the foreign uh, correspondent because of a lot of my background and, you know, like I said, a lot of the research and stuff that I do and everybody is quick to ask who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And there's none. This situation does not have that. This is not as this is not clear at all. It's muddy. It's dirty. And there's, uh, you know, there's so many not only equities, uh, but generations of wrongdoings at stake. Um that at the end of the day, you know, it's just going to be very, very painful for a lot of people. Yeah, I think I think what worries us, and you know, sort of what we're tracking and thinking about is, you know, the the as you as you point to the worst the worst outcome is a sort of regional uh, conflagration of like more powers getting involved. I, 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 I presume I don't know, but that's why the U.S. has sent the aircraft carrier groups down there to sort of back Iran down and just say, hey, you know, like, you know, we're here. By the way, um, because you know, those I, I believe Hezbollah has a tremendous amount of rockets they could fire into the Israel, which would overwhelm the Iron Dome situation there. Um, I mean, and, and of course, you know, yeah, so, so when does, what does Israel do? You know, does it, it can't, I'm presuming it can't fight a two front war, uh, no. although it has in the past though, right? I mean, you know, it's sort of, um, really I, three, I, if you, if you think Gaza, you think trying to control everything on the West bank and then, Oh, look, okay. Hezbollah in the North wants to do something. I got, I got, I was talking to a, a, a colleague this morning and he was saying he, he had been supplying military equipment uh, to, to Israel, like specific units, their families were asking for them because the speed of, uh, of them being spun up the reservists, they haven't got all the equipment they need yet. So, um, I, so yeah, the, Israel fighting a three front war, I don't know. I mean, cause yeah, you're right. It's North, South and maybe the West Bank, right? So I, I mean, and it's out on their territory. I mean, yeah, I think, um, there, there. I think I, I would, I would maybe offer this that just as we thought, this might be an interesting analogy actually, which I haven't seen anywhere. Just as we thought the Russian military were going to take Kiev in like two weeks, and most Western sort of analysts had it down. I would say prior to this attack, we felt the Israeli intelligence services were some of the best in the world. We're obviously fully aware of their cyber and uh, you know communications capabilities. 
IDF is is not known for being shrinking violets. So we figured they were pretty good, but I don't know, maybe this is going to uh, prove that uh, obviously they've had a massive failure of intelligence already, and then we'll see what happens with their military forces if they can, um, you know, if they can fight back or if they can defend the country. I think that that's an open question right now. If they end up in a three-way fight, um, they, they might not be as robust or, uh, I, you know, they might have some, some certainly some short to medium term military issues that we wouldn't have thought of before this started. You know, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot to unpack, and clearly this is going to continue to unfold. Who who would have thought that Russia Ukraine still still going on strong too? But gentlemen, I'll get you out of here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Everybody, check out Endgame First Leadership Strategy for Navigating a Crisis. I'll leave. All the information in the show notes, uh, all proceeds, just like um, Mike said, go to the 188 Foundation that these, you know, Roderick founded, does a lot of great humanitarian aid things out there. So don't just think this is Mike writing a Navy book uh, for the Navy. <laughs> it's actually going to a good cause. Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was <the> awesome. <laughs> Thank you, guys. It, it truly means uh, a lot to me for you guys coming on, discussing, and sharing those stories. Great. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So yep. man. Appreciate it. Favorite rapper, hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper, the absolute.